Welcome to Episode 7 of Starting Nowhere. I'm your host, Brandon. Today, my guest is Dr. Jonathan Cox. He is a professor at the University of Central Florida, where he studies sociology and the broad subject of race. Today, we'll talk about how he got started on this path and where he thinks we are in 2020. We'll also get a little bit into his martial arts background. Please enjoy today's episode. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Cox. Why don't you go ahead and let everybody know uh, who you are, a little bit about yourself, and how we know each other. Sure, sure. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so, Jonathan Cox, I am a professor of sociology um, at the University of Central Florida. I'll go ahead and say it because why not, right? Let people know. Um, I think that's, that's good. Um, and it's, it's probably going to be relevant to some of the things that we end up talking about. Um, so, I study race. Like I said, I'm in sociology. I study race. I consider myself to be a race scholar. Um, and essentially, what I mean by that is that I look at race as one of the most significant, uh, important aspects of social life that exists right now. Um, and so I just use race as kind of the lens through which I look at whatever else that I'm going to be, you know, engaging with. So I look at a lot of stuff related to racial identities, um, ethnic identities, um, how people understand themselves as racial beings, how they see other people, racial ideology. I'm really big into uh, color blindness, which is, you know, the dominant racial ideology that we have in the U.S. right now. So all things race related, uh, right, on top of, you know, social inequality, all these other things. Um, so yeah, so that's me in a nutshell. I study all these things, write papers, do a lot of teaching, a lot of speaking, things like that. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it's great. I, I was talking about a little earlier. Uh, haven't seen you or talked to you in, I mean, it's been decades, yeah, <laughs> which is crazy to say. It makes me feel really old, but yeah, it's been a long time. We, we uh, basically grew up together, right? It went to junior high and high school together since the school we were at was seven through 12. So we spent yeah, a long time. Um, at the school. And so, yes, it's cool to, to get to see you doing this work and to, to reconnect with you again for this, uh, for, for what you're doing now. I like it. Absolutely, man. And I think that's kind of where I want to start. It's just going to, I don't know about your, your uh, year, but my year didn't even end up having a 10 year reunion. We couldn't oh, get it yeah. together. And I, I'm from out of state. So I, I live in Florida now, much like yourself. I know you're uh, over in Orlando. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was like, hey, were you doing this? Because I need to buy tickets. I got to do all this stuff. And a lot of people <laughs> were just around the way. So they was trying to like plan it up until like a week before and everything. So, um, but just going back to where, man, like, it's crazy because my main memory of you and I and how we knew each other and stuff like that was like show choir and like men's choir <laughs> and stuff like that. And all those <laughs> terrible songs, man. Uh, especially because back man. then I was a high tenor. And I can't, man, I can't hit any Ooh, of that who anymore. Who are you telling? Yeah. No, nope. That's all. I'm definitely solid baritone at this point. <laughs> did you did you keep up with, like, any of the art stuff that we did? Because I was in theater and choir. Mm -hmm. uh, did you, I know you were in choir. Were you in anything else with any of the sure. other arts? Um, I did. Yeah, I did there, actually. So I did choir. Um, I started off, interestingly, at Cyrus in visual arts. That's what I went there for, was to draw. Um, so I did that for a couple years and then eventually kind of switched out, kept doing choir, and then went to creative writing was what I ended up doing for the majority of the time that I was there. Um, which, I mean, kind of makes sense, I guess. Now I'm a writer. <laughs> yeah. um, it's part of my career. Um, I do sing still. Um, so I'm still involved with music. It's just it's one of my loves. Um, and I have, you know, I'm a very musical family. You probably remember my sister, mm -hmm. um, who is a singer as well. Um, so yeah, still sing right, right now for my church or just for fun mainly. But that's about it. Tinker with some instruments, but I'm not good at any of them. So don't <laughs> really talk about that. <laughs> no, I actually, I actually uh, saw Jamie a couple years ago. <laughs> I had her take some photos okay. for us of uh, my sisters nice. and uh, their children for my mother. It was my mother's 50th birthday. So that was her nice. present to her. Uh, I got a photo set done by Jamie. So we, we have tons okay. of those photos floating around and everything. So shout That's out to cool. Jamie for doing that. Does great work. You know, oddly, in, it's odd that she got into that because 
I she was also in choir. I don't think she was in any of the visual mm-hmm. arts that we had, like no, in photography. Not stuff. at all. Yeah, it was so crazy. She was a band person. She played like four instruments when yeah, we were yeah. growing up. Like it's it's nuts. But yeah, she got into and when she went to UD University of Dayton, mm-hmm. um, and that's where she started getting into like the visual arts. And it's crazy because she was really good at all that stuff. Um, and so yeah, it, I'm glad that she kind of found her passion with the photography. Yeah, for sure. So tell me how. What was your life like immediately following high school? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Not specifically through mm-hmm. uh, the academic part, but just, sure. you know, what did you do after high school? Yeah, so after high school, I ended up going to a college at Hampton University, uh, which is, you know, for those of you all who don't know, that is a, a HBCU, it's a historically black college um, in, in Virginia. Um, so I went there, it was amazing. I mean, I had a blast uh, just being in that environment for four years, right? Like not really having to think about race in the same ways that, you know, we have to, Right. I mean, you know, like Dayton was a hugely segregated place, um, even though Stivers was, I think, pretty good. Like we I think we had really good relationships, generally speaking, across the racial line. But outside of that, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had a blast there. I just really enjoyed myself. Um, and I, I kind of started my career because I enjoyed myself so much in college. I was like, man, look, you can get paid to work at a college. What? Um, and so I did after that, yeah, I went to um, grad school so I could learn how to be a, like a student affairs person. I, I worked in college administration for a few years um, after uh, I did my graduate degree. Um, and so, yeah, I just got really involved working at colleges. I love working with college students. I think that's just a great age uh, for people to really explore who they are, what they know, all these different things. Um, and through all of those different experiences, I mean, I bounced around to a ton of places. I did my first master's at like Penn State. So I spent a bunch of time right after leaving Hampton in HBCU at Penn State, which was like over 70% white and like one of the whitest parts of, of Pennsylvania dead in the middle of it. So that was a really, really interesting experience too. Um, definitely had a blast, but some crazy stuff happened there. And so yeah, I just kind of fell in love with education and, and teaching in more like alternative formats. Um, and so, yeah, so through my work in student affairs, uh, you know, working with, I worked in multicultural affairs for a while. Um, and so I was working with students of color on predominantly white campuses. Um, and so it's really just interesting to, you know, be involved in that atmosphere, get to know them, see how their experiences uh, differentiated significantly from my own. So, you know, that was cool. Um, and then through that, I think through all those different experiences, um, What's interesting is that since I'm a sociologist now, I actually never took a sociology class until I went to grad school to become a, a to get my PhD in sociology. Um, and so I think I went that route because I was looking at uh, what I was gonna do. I didn't wanna keep doing the higher ed thing the way I was doing it. Um, I'm really just trying to figure out my place. And one of my friends had this really interesting suggestion. He said, well, if you like teaching, why don't you just look at a bunch of like college um, you know, books to see, not the books, they're uh, like course bulletins and stuff to see what classes, you know, strike you as interesting that you think you might want to teach. Um, and I did that. And interestingly, then that's when I found out that all these courses were in sociology. And so I was like, oh, that'd be kind of dope to, to learn how to do that. Um, and so that's kind of what got me to where I am now, which is, I think I tend to, I've always kind of tended to look at the world in, you know, a sociological way. So looking at like how people are interacting, how groups are working together, all these different things. And so it just kind of all like fell into place as I was, you know, transitioning around the nation <laughs> and through all these schools and jobs and different stuff. And so that's ended up here. Um, it's a pretty interesting journey, I will say that. Yeah. And that's, I think you touched on something there that I kind of wanted to ask about and you already answered it really, huh? but uh, how people end up on their journey, whether they're you have those people who kind of from a young age know what they want to do and they drive at that path really early on. And you have people like myself and it sounds like you as well, who kind of just 
wanted to experience life and then fell into what they kind of did because they had a passion for it or for me to be honest with you because i didn't know what other paths and it paid well so you know what i mean yeah. so uh <laughs> It's just always interesting because like I know my girlfriend who she uh, the reason I'm in Miami now she's getting her PhD in epidemiology mm -hmm. so uh, that's okay. why we we're here and she's complete opposite she knew what she wanted to do from a very young age and kind of mm -hmm. chased that path and went into the public sector to do research and to, to, um, to try to help people you know through that research and everything and it's just crazy to me that that can be a mindset because I know who I was yeah. like the last time we talked to you know, who I was in high school whatever that kid wanted to do, I would not be wanting to do today at all. Cause I didn't know anything about anything. Yeah. So yeah. same for me. It's, it's so interesting. Cause I, I mean, it was, people told me my whole life that I was going to be a teacher and I rejected that out of hand. I said, first of all, I hate school. I know I'm good at it. I get good grades, but I hate, the only thing I liked doing really was the stuff outside of school. So like show choir and all these other things that we were doing there. Right. I mean, you know, Cyprus was obviously a fun place cause it was an art school but I hated the actual school thing. And so I was like, you're nuts if you think I'm gonna go teach people. And then of course, you know, the more you say stuff like that, that's what ends up happening. Um, you know, I kind of fell in love with this idea. Plus, I don't know if you knew, my parents are educators. So like two, I was, I grew up in that environment. Mm -hmm. um, my mom's a college professor. My dad was, he was, he started off in like English, but then was a high school principal for years. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, hell no, nah, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not gonna be an educator. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Life happens, you figure things out, next thing you know, you're, you're like, oh, this is where I fit in. It feels pretty good. So that's cool. But uh, I was actually saying that I, I actually do remember that your mom was an educator because she was the first PhD I ever met, the first uh, oh, okay. doctor, you know, who wasn't a medical doctor that I ever met and the first black woman uh, doctor as well. So I, I very much remember that. And it was kind of a formative experience in seeing that that was possible, not only for uh, not being a medical doctor, but just a PhD in general, but yeah. also a woman of color or a person of color in general, a black mm -hmm. woman at that. Um, so I do, I do remember her a lot more than we only met a handful of times, but I just remember going, wow, sure. that's possible. I didn't even know. And again, we had the opposite experience because I barely graduated high school. I was very <laughs> bad. At, bro, I'm telling you, I, I graduated with 2.2 uh, or I don't even know. It's something mm -hmm. in the twos for sure. And, and on the lower end. Um, and the only reason I passed is because I had Miss Spangler and for extra credit, every page of uh, something you memorize you could uh, you get like a 10 points or whatever there was. And I was so far behind. So I uh, did Beowulf and I remember memorized Whoa. like something like, yeah, <laughs> I did like eight pages of Beowulf. I was sitting there talking for like 20 minutes. And one of the kids like, look, just pass him. He's got to shut up. <laughs> he can't keep doing this. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, that's a crazy long poem. That's kudos to you, dude. I, I hated reading that. It was, it was so long. Jesus. Oh, I did too, but it was either that or go to uh, summer school and have to put off my college plans and everything, which mm -hmm. probably would have been good for me at the time. But uh, <laughs> so I just, and, and from the background of, you know, theater and everything, it was, yeah. I was good at the time of just memorizing stuff and then regurgitating mm -hmm. it. You know what I mean? So have you seen any of the stuff that's going on with Stivers now where they're talking about losing their art designation? Yeah, I saw that. Um, we, I, I still, um, you know, talked to a few of the, the other um, folks that were in my year. Um, so like Gary, uh, Anya, Keisha, all the, actually I'm wearing Keisha, Keisha's uh, shirt right now. Um, so we were chatting. They told us, um, her and, and Ashley um, Harris told us, they sent us a little Facebook thing, like they're trying to give her the arts at Stivers. And it just blew our minds. I, I don't know what's up with that. I, I signed up for like some group that's on Facebook that's like save stivers or something so I can make sure I get all the updates but yeah that's it's nuts I don't understand shout out to Gary too I've actually talked to Gary a lot over the past couple of years uh we've crossed nice. paths with me helping him out uh very minimally let me be clear the successes <laughs> he's doing are all his own I just uh gave him some of my uh 
professional experience and when he asked for it uh, through Reaply and everything like that. So shout out mm-hmm. to Gary for sure. But uh, And for, for those who are listening to this or who will listen to this and don't know anything about Stivers, Stivers is a public school uh, that has arts programs that you actually audition to get into. And so what mm-hmm. they're talking about right now is getting rid of the arts designation and just turning them into a regular public school. And that's kind of what we're trying to set up. And because uh, the first thing they go whenever they cut budgets is always the arts, right. even though it right. has so mm-hmm. much scientific evidence of improving outcomes for children uh, when you learn at a, a young age, but adults even, I would say. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm definitely, I need to get in that group too and see what I can do to try to help out. Because even though Stivers was a high school, and I think I have much more of an affinity for it than I do uh, any of the colleges or, you know, uh, graduate uh, schools that I went to, for sure. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I love, I mean, Cyrus was great. It was definitely a formative experience. I mean, I, I really enjoyed being there. Uh, just being in that arts environment was great. I think we had some really good teachers, too, um, people that obviously cared about us a lot. So met some fantastic people. So, yeah, I would hate to see Cyrus change. It was kind of like a beacon of the, you know, Dayton public school system. So that's, that's really a shame. Mm-hmm. And the nerdiest thing for me is that I've gotten excited from seeing a couple of those, uh, those people on Facebook. Uh, you know what I mean? A couple of the teachers that we yeah. had and they were like, oh man, I met one of the interesting ones for me. And you don't have to share any personal experience if you have a memory <laughs> of this person or not was uh, Mr. Shindell. And I remember not mm-hmm. terribly liking him when I was in school, but you know, like any authority figure. Right. And then I'm seeing him on right. Facebook and I see him out there, you know, uh, supporting the movements and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. All right. Maybe yeah. I see, I just didn't know who the hell I was actually talking to when I was a kid, but kids don't know nothing. So. Yeah. And you got, you know, when you're a, t- a teacher in high school, mm-hmm. you, you have to, be a certain way, I think, in, in some senses, right? That's what I studied in undergrad, God bless me. Um, and so it was, yeah, it's interesting. I kind of saw that side of it. And so, yeah, it was really interesting, like you said, right, to see some of the same people that were teachers and remember them in certain ways, but then see how they're acting on Facebook or in other ways. I'm like, that's great. I never had, I don't think I ever actually took a class with Mr. Shindell. I knew who he was. We interacted a couple of times, but yeah, it's, it's really great to see him like, so involved, so vocal about various things and, and so supportive of, of some really great movement. So I think that's a good segue into your academic career. I'm, I'm very intrigued about how the HBCU experience formed the path that you ultimately went on and where mm-hmm. that has led you today. So can you just go a little bit more into what your PhD is in and how it, uh, it, what you do day to day and what kind of research you do and stuff like that? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so again, so the PhD is in sociology. Um, I concentrated, in, I did a concentration in rather um, social psychology and uh, critical race theory. Um, those were the two areas that I really wanted to look at. Um, again, that, that kind of started my, this is the start of this whole idea of me being a race scholar was looking at that critical race lens. Um, social psych, I think it's awesome because it, it pulls together the psycho- psychological area of, of study and the sociological. I think you kind of need both of those to understand things really well. Um, so that's why I like those. But jumping back to the beginning, right? Um, so I went to Hampton, HBCU. Uh, like I said, it was just this amazing experience. So for the four years, I actually remember this one incident. And I feel like it was probably maybe like my jun- sophomore, junior year sometime where I was walking on campus. I looked at my arm and was like, oh my God, oh yeah, I'm black. Like I, di- I literally had not thought about the fact that I was black, like in, a, in the same sense that I think about it everywhere else pretty much for those whole four years. Um, and so for me, that was life-changing. Um, and what was also life-changing about being at that school was the fact that uh, that was my first introduction into the idea that there were different types of Black people, right? Like, I really, I mean, I, had, you know, I was well-traveled, you know, per- particularly for, you know, lots of people weren't able to, to get out to different places and stuff. I was blessed to be able to do so. Um, so I saw, you know, different parts of the world. But in my mind, I still only had this very narrow conception of what it meant to be a Black person. Um, from Dayton, 
until I went to Hampton and my mind was blown by, you know, people from different countries. That's when I realized that they were black people that speak Spanish because they're from, uh, you know, Caribbean countries or other areas or, or speak French, right? Like I did, had no idea that these things existed, um, at least not in the way that I saw them once I was there. I, I mean, I met a bunch of black conservatives, right? I had did no idea that there were at the time, right? Black people that had, like voted for Bush um, when that was a thing. Um, and so just knowing all that and meeting all those people was so transformative. Um, it really opened my mind up to a lot of different things. Um, and then, like I said, I transitioned straight from there to Penn State, which was bananas because I remember the first year I was there, I was, I was working, you know, you usually have like an assistantship when you're working. And so I was working during freshman orientation. And, you know, Penn State has over 40,000 students. And so like incoming classes, they might be 10,000 students. And so I remember seeing like a bunch of the, the incoming freshmen coming from like the the stadium or some some kind of a big complication event and they were all walking down the street together and that's the first time i'd ever seen like six thousand white people all at once like moving in a huge mass and to see that right after hampton was just like oh okay this is a new place i gotta figure that out um so yeah i think it just really started me along this journey of you know figuring out what it meant to be black um actually interestingly too um, i my, so my mom is half puerto rican Although she never, she grew up just straight up, you know, African-American black. Um, she didn't know that side of her family. And so at Penn State, I also was, you know, taking that chance to kind of explore what it meant to be Puerto Rican or explore that side of me a little bit, right? Because um, I definitely wouldn't say that I know what it means to be Puerto Rican. I didn't grow up like that at all. Um, so, but I met a lot of people that were Latino, Hispanic at Penn State. I was really in, in, uh, engrossed in the, the black community there. And so it was just awesome to really see all these different things and then to see how groups were playing out um, you know, some of the, the relationships and friendships that formed, um, doing things in Greek life with, you know, cross-organizational uh, cross things where I was using sororities on deep levels, with, you know, with Black, Latino fraternities and sororities. The first time I ever knew that there was, like, Asian fraternities and sororities, I, I had no idea because Penn State was such a, you know, a huge place. Um, so, again, all those various experiences really just kind of helped solidify my, um, I think also the fact that I was now this Black person on this really, really significantly predominantly white campus and just seeing the ways in which the undergraduate experience was so significantly different from mine at an HBCU um, and how like people felt or how they were treated sometimes, right? That was the first, not the first time because, you know, I grew up obviously, but um, when I was at Penn State, that was one of the first times that I was seeing how people in the area around campuses or on campus would treat, uh, you know, minority students. Um, you know, like not let them into clubs or I saw the way that the, you know, some of the black fraternities and sororities were treated by campus police. Um, that was very different from like the really raucous like white fraternities and sororities who was really just like a hands off approach. Um, so I think all that really just got me thinking about like how I can help. Because um, I think up until I was about halfway through Penn State, in my mind, I was like experience. I'm going to go back and work there after I'm done. Um, so that I can just be in this, continue being this all black experience. Um, and interestingly enough, I talked to my mom about this, who, like I said, is a professor um, at the University of Dayton. Um, and she, I asked her why she decided to work there because she went to an HBCU as well. And so she said, well, I thought about it and I decided to go to work at this school because I felt like the black people and other people at this predominantly white school needed to see me more than the people who are at an HBCU. And I thought that was such a, 
an insightful uh, thing to think about. And so that's kind of what really dictated my path and why I've decided since then to work continuously at predominantly white institutions is because HBCUs, they, they, they kind of have it unlocked, right? The experience is great. There's, there's a lot of research that shows how supportive it is of an environment for black students and other students that aren't black at those institutions. Um, and so I wanted to try to bring some of that to uh, predominantly white schools and show them like, right, you know, be one of the black professors that somebody might have because we know that a lot of schools um, mine included right now some people um, black students or latino students or whatever don't see a professor that looks like them ever right or maybe like their last year one time um and so it's really important for me to be able to help provide that kind of a space and so that's where that really dictates like my research approaches what i'm looking at trying to bring some of these things to light um and then the ways in which i engage with students right i feel kind of a, a significant responsibility to to just fit in where I can, right? Help out when I can and just be that face. Maybe to be like you said, my mom was for you, right? To let somebody know that you can be a professor that may not be something you've ever seen, but it does exist. Um, so I think those are some of the things that kind of help get me here. All right. So uh, don't tell your mama that I didn't get my doctorate or anything, because if she feels like, you know, if I say <laughs> she's an inspiration to me, then I'm like, I didn't do anything with it. She'd be like, what was the inspiration for? <laughs> no, but. Uh, <laughs> You, you said so many things there that I really want to touch on, and especially because uh, picking a brain like yours of somebody who's actually looked at the material for uh, a long time and everything is very interesting. But I think one of the ones that I wanted to talk about from what you said there, how do you think that that responsibility that a lot of Black people feel, uh, I think people of all colors uh, feel it, but particularly mm -hmm. Black people, uh, to be that representative face for someone else, that we don't necessarily live our lives for ourselves as much sometimes. We live it for who we can affect and what we can mm -hmm. do to give back to the culture. What do you think that responsibility does um, to either help shape our lives or to put us in a, sure. a very stressful and uh, cause anxiety for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're saying is spot on, right? It's, it's kind of a both and situation, right? So in some senses, um, it can be very inspiring right, to, to know that you can be that for somebody else, right, like that, that whole idea of paying it forward, right, I try to live my life in that way, because I did not get here at all on my own accord, right, there were so many people that helped um, me become the person that I am now, and that are continuing to help me become, right, as I, as I continue to grow and change, and so it's great to have that, and to be able to be that inspiration for somebody else, and to be able to pay it forward in that way, uh, but like you said, at the, at the same time, right, those expectations, um, even if it's just a feeling that you have, right? Because there's not anybody necessarily saying like, you need to be a beacon for a black, all the black people, right? But it is a feeling that we have often that we just feel like we need to do this because we know that a lot of these role models don't exist in the same ways. We know that we're not in the spaces as much as other people. Um, and so it can, it can feel like a burden a lot of times, right? And so even while I, obviously my stamina at being able to, to do some of this, you know, continues to build. Um, but there are some times where I'm like, I don't want to do this shit no more. Like, it's so hard. Um, I remember actually one of my professors, um, I was really, 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 really in a great situation when I was at, uh, I did my PhD at the University of Maryland. And so one of the uh, professors there is uh, Patricia Hill Collins, who is basically like the founder of Black Feminist Theory, right? Um, definitely one of the founding voices for that. And so she was one of my professors, right? I took one of her classes and it was it's insane. Um, but I remember her talking in one class about how she's like, yo, I've been doing this for so long that I'm just tired. Like, I just want to take, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm so, I, I need you all to do it because you're the new generation. Like, I've been doing it for years and years and years and I can't anymore. And it was, I understood it, but I think I understand it a lot better now, having done some of this myself, even just for the first few years of my career as a, a professor. 
um, that it can be very tiring. Um, and then that does play into even, uh, it impacts how we live, or I guess I could say how we die earlier, right? Um, stress, that's one of the things that lots of research continues to show us that stress, no matter what it is, literally shortens your life, um, particularly really bad forms of stress. And so the burden that we often feel of being the only one or being that representative voice, that just adds significant stress to our lives, right? And so in some senses, it's kind of shortening our lives by doing this. Um, but the weird thing is that you can't even really, it's really hard to just say like, I'm not gonna do it, right? I think particularly if you're a very conscious person and you feel that calling, because everybody's not gonna feel it and that's fine, right? But if you feel that calling to be that and to do these things, um, then it's really hard to sit it down and let it go because you know that you're one of the few people who's doing it. And so, if, you know, when I feel extra tired, I'm just like, I, I'm done with this shit right now. I don't wanna do it. Um, sometimes, you know, you gotta take that break if you can, but you just still feel that pull and you feel, it feels a little like you're giving up or you're letting people down if you don't. And so you just kind of continue to support, uh, you know, to shoulder that burden. Um, so yeah, there's some positives, some negatives, but it is definitely hard and it definitely has some really negative impacts. Um, you just kind of hope that at the end of the day, the good of it outbalances any of the negative stuff. I'm going to say something that people uh, like yourself who are, are well-educated and uh, do a lot of research and stuff like that hate to hear, but I, I promise it, I think it's going to an okay place. Is uh, I remember reading an article uh, a while back about <laughs> how one of the things that affects black net worth and it being lower is the need to give back. The feel, or yeah. me, let me say the responsibility that a lot of black people feel to give back, to pay that for. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, a lot of the net worth for black individuals doesn't remain in their own uh, hands. They pass it out to the community. They pass it out to some right. other family. Uh, I know for myself, I try, to, I try to help my family when I can uh, with any money that I get. Um, and we're not even talking about like, I'm not a millionaire. I don't think that you're a millionaire. You know, if you are, feel free oh, to out yourself. But, <laughs> but it's just an interesting thing. And I just wonder how that comes through for so many of us when we're not even like, again, like I said, we haven't talked in 20 years, but a lot of our, yeah. our experiences maybe were similar or maybe mm -hmm. we just somehow got to a similar place with that responsibility of giving back and finding different ways to do that. And so for myself, one of the things that I want to uh, make my message as a part of giving back is making economic empowerment more prevalent in the black community because we live in a mm -hmm. capitalistic society. And at the end of the day, if you have dollars, you have options. And that's really, right. I think what a lot of disenfranchised communities need is options. Cause I'm not telling you how to be black. You know what I mean? I'm not sure. telling you what that means to you or how to give back or do whatever. But if you have those options, I'm excited to see what comes from that. Cause I think that's where yeah. all growth really starts from is the options or seeing the path forward, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's, it's so real, right? This idea of, of giving back that happens, right? And so this is something that happens in particular for um, Black Americans and for uh, Latino Hispanic Americans, right? Uh, we as groups of people, um, it's not just that the, we feel a need to give back, like we often absolutely have to give back, right? That's one of the major differences that you, that you can see between white Americans and then other Americans of color, right? Um, particularly, like I said, Blacks and Latinos is because we have to, right? One, we're in terms of like seg how segregation and stuff works, right? So to talk about that for a second, um, because of segregation and because of racism, right? Even upper and high class Black people or Latino Hispanic people, particularly Black people, like we're often relegated to living really, really closely um, 
like right next door to poorer black people, right? And that's not something that happens with white Americans, right? Typically for white Americans in the aggregate, like once they move up out of a particular social class into the next one, they leave everything behind, right? You don't hear that same mentality of like that you often hear within a lot of black communities, which is like, I want you to still be connected to, you know, kind of like the hood or like where you came from, right? That's not something that we see happening with white Americans. Um, and so there's that that adds pressure to it. And then also like whether you're talking about um, just the social economic situations of black Americans, um, we have significantly less wealth um, as compared to white Americans, right? Like it's, the, I mean, the numbers are, are mind boggling. Um, and so we end up, and a lot of that is because in part, at least because we're giving back, we're supporting other family members, we're moving people into our houses, we're taking care of elderly parents. Um, and we're doing that all while making less money while we work, not being allowed to be in the same types of jobs, right? Not having the same upward mobility as other groups. And so then obviously that's gonna all compound itself into a situation in which, what do you know, what are you gonna do? You're gonna, you have to try to help out, you wanna help out, you're not gonna leave your family just stranded. Um, and so then you end up cutting money out of your own pockets and you end up not being able to build that intergenerational wealth. And so that's one of the things that I've kind of thought, uh, a theory that I've seen that I don't know how much it'll help or how much it would solve, but it's one of the theories that are going out there to, to try to fix that, at least for the gender gap as well as the race gap and when it comes to uh, salaries, is full salary disclosure. Is because mm -hmm. if you have to tell everybody what uh, you're making, if, you have, if the whole company has to say what they're paying everybody, then suddenly I can look right. across at my colleague and go, hey, why is this dude making 10 to 20% more than me? You know what I mean? And yeah. then you can start asking for that. And then you can also hold them accountable for that. Because one of the things that I always go back to when people talk about uh, the theory of meritocracy, which I don't believe exists in, in corporate America yeah. by any means, no. um, <laughs> is if you tell me there's a meritocracy, then the salary, if you fully disclose people's salaries, it should bear that out. Mm -hmm. It should look like a, you right. know, a, a normal uh, distribution, a bell curve and everything. But we all know that it won't. So what you're telling me is there is not a meritocracy and there are other factors at play here. So if I'm able to see that data, then I can actually start to apply some, uh, some movement, I think, in, within the community because sure. you can go, hey, why is X employee making this and that employee not? And then we can start to negotiate a little bit better. And I think it benefits all the employees, but does not necessarily benefit mm -hmm. the companies the same. And I think that's why people are so resistant to it because as I continue to go back to in a lot of these conversations that I have, um, the things we're told to not talk about religion, race, uh, politics, and money. And money is the one that I, I always try to tell people, talk about it. You should be talking about yeah. it. You shouldn't be ashamed of what you make, whether it's a little, whether it's a lot, because that's what you make. That's your reality. It doesn't actually change anything because there's people in America who make less and there's people in America who mm -hmm. make more. You know what I mean? And if we're able to be more open and disclose that, then I think we are all as a society can get better. And it also removes the stigma, which money is to me, one of the biggest stigmas that I don't understand around people. And I don't understand why we're not taught more about it, particularly in like high yeah. school, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so true, right? And it's weird because, well, not weird, right? But like other countries don't have the same like desire or barrier for talking about salaries, right? Like people, like I remember when I traveled out of the country once with, actually with Gary, went to Paris. Um, people were just like, when we asked about their jobs, what they were doing, like they were just volunteering, like this is how much I make, right? Like it's not a thing to discuss that, right? And so like you said, we do need that salary transparency here because it'll help. And I think it will also help people to see the depth of the disparity that exists, right? We're talking about a $30,000 difference between like the average annual or the median incomes between whites and black families, uh, right? Like it, it's huge, it's insane, right? Like the net wealth for um, 
white people is something like 10 times that of, of black Americans. Like this, that's bananas, right? But in a part of that is this, the, like you said, this lack of transparency in terms of like how much people make, what is it? Because you don't know, you can't ask for more, you don't, have, you don't see, you don't understand that other people are being paid more, like you're saying, um, and that you should be paying, uh, be getting paid more for whatever it is that you're doing, right? We definitely need to be talking about that. And I think that's one of the easy ones, right? Like, you know, racism, discrimination, politics, religion, those can be some kind of tricky discussions to have, but just being like, this is how much I make, that's pretty simple. It is in theory, but in practice, yeah. I think, like you said, it goes back to because there's two two responses almost always when somebody's about to say what they make: shame or you're bragging. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those two things, and we have to get if we can't get past that emotion, uh, then we're never going to be able to actually have open conversations about that. But there are companies out there, some of the startups out in Silicon Valley and uh, other places that do that. They let people know yeah. and. Uh, I don't know if you know this about me or not, but I, I was military. I served in the Air Force for mm -hmm. uh, two months shy of 11 years. Um, and in the military, everyone knows what everyone makes. And it does not cause yeah. any problems whatsoever. You know, you have yeah. some of the normal jealousies you have, but that's true at any company because I don't need to know what the VP makes to know he makes more than me. You know what I mean? So. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's the same at like public institutions for the most part, right? So at UCF, um, like our salaries are published. Like you, mm -hmm. as it's not like on the website, like right on the front page, right. but you can find that information if you want. It's the same at University of Maryland because it was a state school. And so they have to disclose and there's no, there's no issue, right? Like it's just there for you to see. So we could easily do that with other folks. But like you're saying, some people, mostly the people who are in charge do not want that to happen because then they can't create these disparities. They can't pay certain people more. Maybe that's your homeboy. You want to slide them a little bit extra money. Mm -hmm or you just like that person better, you think they should be getting paid more, right? That kind of stuff can happen because it's not transparent. Absolutely. So there's something that I wanted to ask you because you are a race scholar and this is a uh, mm -hmm. two things that are close to my heart. And you said something in, in this conversation that I didn't know about you, so it makes me even more interested to hear your perspective on it. What is your perspective on multiculturalism, particularly in the black community? Because I know, uh, for those who don't know, and I think you know this, but I'm not sure, but my mother's white, I'm mixed, you know, mm -hmm. uh, black and white. But and in the black community, sometimes if you don't identify as purely black, they can see it as kind of like you're trying to set, I'm not Tiger Woods, I'm not separate myself from my blackness yeah. or anything like that. But I also don't want to disrespect my mother that way. You know what I mean? She's sure. the one who primarily raised me and everything. So I can't look at it. People go, nah, nah, black. No, no, nothing else, mm -hmm. nothing like that. So what are, what are your thoughts on multi multiculturalism in the black community, particularly, uh, as it as it pertains, excuse me, as it pertained to your own experiences with the uh, trying to mm -hmm. dive a little bit into your Puerto Rican ancestry and everything. Yeah, and I think that's such a it can be such a touchy subject for some people. Um, I think so. So I think that one of the reasons why it ends up being an issue for lots of folks or why people you know want folks to just identify as black. Um, I think a lot of that stems from the fact that the way race is socially constructed in our country. Um, is solely based on how you look, how you are perceived by other people, right? There's this, this aspect of self-identification, um, but right, if, excuse me, if your self-identification does not match up with what other people think, it's a problem, right? People are gonna tell you all the time, like, you, you're not that, no, you're this. And so, right, um, and so the same way you're, you know, you're biracial, black and white, right? I always bring people back to the example of like President Obama, right? He was biracial, black, white. But nobody ever wanted to acknowledge the fact that he was part white, right? And so, like you're saying, theoretically, he should be able to claim blackness and whiteness equally. But it doesn't work like that because he looks like a black man, right? You look like a black man. 
right? Maybe a lighter skinned black man. So maybe somebody could guess that you might be biracial, but they wouldn't know that. You could just literally just be light skinned. I want to let um, you know so that. Uh, I yeah. definitely did try to make people anytime anybody who talked to me, I let them know, oh, he wasn't just our first black person, he was first mixed president. I'm getting my yeah. flowers too. <laughs> <laughs> right. We which we should, right? And so again, I think a lot of the some of the the just the way people end up talking about it or fighting against it often again, it goes back to this idea that it's based on what you see. And so like people even if you're telling people well, I'm this from that, I have this other stuff, a lot of times, um, sometimes there's there's a couple of things. One, you look a certain way, and so people want to put you in that box, right? That's how people like broadly are. We don't like things that don't fit neatly into some category. Um, so we like that. Um, and then also this idea of who, what you are seen as, right? And so there's this aspect that people might have of if you try to, if you look a certain way, you look black and you are black in that sense, um, but you try to claim something else, people may feel like you are somehow trying to distance yourself from blackness because, and the assumption is that you feel some type of way of being black or, you know, like you're bougie and you want to try to like, be like, I'm better than, right? And so I think a lot of that stuff comes up um, in terms of why some people would, uh, you know, dislike those conversations. I think, again, it's a lot, it's a combination of lots of those different things. Um, but when we're looking at like racial identity, right, it's such a complex thing. And one of the reasons why it's so complex is because race is literally made up, right? Like the people made it up at the beginning of the, at the, I always put in quotations, the founding of this country, right? You know, when the uh, European settlers, colonizers came over here and, you know, stripped land and killed all the indigenous folks and enslaved black people. Uh, they embedded race into our society, right? And so they created these ideas of race. Interestingly, other countries um, like Nazi Germany at the time, right? Like they pulled a lot from us in terms of how we un we created race in order to make that happen. Um, and so it's made up. And so because it's made up, it's so complex when we try to like actually like figure out what's going on and what people are and ancestry and all this, because there's no clear way to delineate between these. You can't draw perfect lines around a socially constructed category, right? Because it's made up and people are not gonna fit into these boxes as neatly as you want them to fit. And so the we've had this issue forever, right? All the way back to, um, the beginning of this country when you know there were black people who had you know who had been raped and they their children were you know biracial or mixed race and so you know some of them could pass for white or not pass for white and they got different privileges or not based on all this and so it's just really this complex thing um that i think people humans we just don't like complexity it would be much easier if we could just all check the one little box i am this that's it don't ask me no other questions right and so as soon as you start throwing other stuff in the mix some people get uh, a little bothered because they can't figure out what it is. Uh, it's not easy to create group solidarity. If you, the more diversity you have in any given thing, the harder it is to have like cohesion, just because there's lots of different things. That's one of the reasons why people fight against diversity so much is because, I mean, rightfully so in some ways, it's hard to create some kind of a group idea or a cohesive unit of people if there's a lot of diversity that exists within that. And do you think that comes from, uh, and I, I know this isn't primarily your field of study or anything like that, but in some of the reading that I've done and just my own uh, thinking about the matter, I wonder if that's from our own tribalism and the fact that we used to see people who went outside of uh, what we know to be dangerous, to be risky. And mm -hmm. so one of the ways we try to pull them back and make them safe is through those uh, socialization mechanisms that we tell people, hey, don't do that. You can't be this. You need to be this. And we believe that somehow we're making them safe. Do you think that that is at the heart of what we're doing? Or do you think, like you said, it's that combined with the craziness that is trying to uh, define race when it doesn't naturally exist. 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's an aspect of it, right? And so a lot of race uh, studies look at, they bring in these ideas of tribalism as well too. Um, because yeah, you wanna have group solidarity. And again, if you don't have a really solid group, then you, it's really hard to do things like maintain power or maintain structure in the ways that you want, right? To maintain your specific ideology, um, to maintain your own dominance, right? And so that's one of the reasons why people see this, right? And so if you look historically again, right? We know that in the United States, um, white Americans are the dominant racial group, uh, not only numbers wise, but also just ideologically and all of that. Um, but historically speaking, right, there were definitely groups of white people that came to the United States and were not considered white, right? Irish, Italians, Jewish, all these different groups of people. There's fights right now over how to classify Middle Eastern and North African people because some of them are very fair skinned or look like what we would consider to be white, right? But when you have those discussions, like part of that is we want them to be counted as white because if we do that, we can maintain like white racial dominance in a sense, right? Like that is, there, we still have a huge core of people. We can invite them in, right? Um, that's one of the things that happened with the Irish, right? They, they were offered acceptance into whiteness, right? This is a very generalized version of this story, but <laughs> they were offered acceptance into whiteness um, as soon as they started basically dissing um, black people with regards to unions. They started unionizing and they wouldn't let black people in and then all of a sudden, hey, you're white too, right? And so it's a way, part of it is a way to consolidate power, which definitely connects back to the idea of tribalism, um, which is essentially what we see like nativism kind of growing out of, right? This idea that we are these people and everybody else outside of this, y'all have some different, you're a threat in some way, even if we're gonna work with you and we wanna make sure that we delineate these lines clearly between us and them. And I think you touched on a lot of really good things there because my white side is Irish. And one of the mm -hmm. common refrains when you get in these conversations, I know being a race color, you have heard this <laughs> a million times, is the plight of the Irish. And how, oh, yeah. well, Irish people were put down upon and uh, they still were able to blah, 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 blah. And I'm always like, yeah, if, we, if I get to be white at the end of this, I'm sure that my, <laughs> my community can turn that around as well if we get that pass in. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as an, another side of that, and I've talked to a lot, some of my white friends recently about this, it was like, that also stripped them of their cultures. There isn't really a white culture. Let's talk about that because there's an Irish culture. There's an Italian culture. There's a mm -hmm. French culture. There's all these cultures that have existed for all these years that were stripped when they became white. You know what I mean? They right. no longer really have that. Now we have American culture, which is open to anybody who's an American, which does not just include white people. You know what I mean? Sure. So I think that there's a lot of problems that came from that in that search for either dominance or search for relevance by designating all these different classes of people white instead of just saying, hey, we've got Irish Americans, we've got Italian Americans, we've got all these different types of Americans. And at the end of the day, we're all Americans. So I think that kind of naturally leads me into my next question. I want your perspective mm -hmm. on black versus African American. Yeah, so that's an interesting thing, right? And I, I do study that a lot, uh, or quite a bit, right? Because I'm really interested in in particular in illuminating or to help illuminate the differences that exist within black culture. Like I said, a lot of that grew out of my experiences at Hampton where I saw all these different types of black people. Um, and so I think in, in some senses, I think that ends up getting blown up in ways that are unhelpful, right? Like the, the kind of the pitting of African-American, right? So American born African-Americans versus uh, people who either were born somewhere else or, uh, you know, are the children of people who are born other people, right? Children of immigrants. Um, so in some ways that gets blown up in, in order to kind of help create the distinction and division. Um, it doesn't end up working that well, right? So we, we know that research shows us that, you know, Caribbean American, Black Caribbeans or Africans who are immigrating, right? Um, and all these other ethnic Black groups um, 
sometimes they come to the United States and they attempt to distinguish themselves from African-Americans in part because it's really easy to see that African-Americans in this country are treated like shit, right? Like we are, we are seen as like the lowliest, right? For, since the beginning of this country. And so they attempt to distinguish themselves often, but then they run into problems because they look like black people, right? And so as soon as they no longer have anything that can, you know, distinguish them as not being African-American, right? So like an accent or other cultural aspects that um, are things that people can pick up on, right? So second and third generation uh, folks who are immigrating, right, or children of immigrants, uh, they usually have a, a shift almost immediately then to just go ahead and just call themselves black. They may still, they're probably still gonna identify as, you know, this Caribbean heritage or this African heritage, but they figure out pretty quickly that in America, there's no distinction between those two different groups. And so you might as well just go ahead and be African-American um, or at least consider yourself part of that broader group of black Americans because nobody's gonna treat you differently, right? You're still gonna get, there's no way to avoid that because again, from the beginning, it's been set up that black is less than, black is different inherently. Um, and it is so problematic, right? And so we end up seeing a lot of that stuff play out in terms of the, the distinguishing that happens. Um, and a lot of that happens with, again, folks that recently immigrated or maybe like that first generation of kids who are like under parents who immigrated, right? Um, but that ends up going away. So again, after five or six years of being in this country or a couple of generations, it's not really an issue anymore. <laughs> and, and I've always found that interesting to me too, just for the one other aspect of, uh, if we just say the census, right? Um, yeah. Because there's all the other Americans, the, the uh, mm -hmm. Asian Americans, you know, um, the Polynesian Americans, the, all these various Americans, and then there's Caucasian. Instead of yeah. a European American, instead of an Australian American, or whatever you know, other thing you want to put on there, and so that's one of the reasons that I personally, for my own self-identification, do generally reject the African American term. Not because I'm yeah. ashamed to be associated with Africa or anything like that, but one, just like you said, I don't have the culture of a person who came here from Africa, so to term me as an African American is disingenuous at best, right? Sure. Um, and then secondary, secondary to that why is there Caucasian slash white as a designation without an, uh, an hyphenated American, if you will. And, and mm -hmm. there isn't for black or there isn't for others, you know what I mean? So, and so I right. don't see black as a negative term. I don't think white's a negative yeah. term. I think they're just different ways to describe skin tone. They're unnecessary in a lot of ways, but uh, we, we are here. So <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so I just always found that interesting because like I said, that was, it's one of those things that came about, I think I, I and my timeline's probably way wrong on this, so correct me where you have better information, obviously. Uh, but, but like 70s, 80s, I think is when they really started pushing out that term African-American as a, uh, into the national lexicon to say, hey, this is the non-offensive uh, way to refer to people of mm -hmm. uh, black people in America. And then I also found that when I went overseas, um, so when I was in the military, I deployed twice to uh, Qatar. And the first time I went there was 2008. I literally landed during the 2008 election when President Obama was being elected. Uh, and so I've gotten this question my entire life and overseas, they barely speak English for a lot of people I was talking to. So they had no shame to say these type of things too, culturally, I think. Uh, and they asked what I was, you know, they'd be like, oh, what are you and everything. Mm -hmm. So I, I try to tell them what I was, I say I'm, I'm mixed and stuff like that. And I try to say black, and they're like, what is black? It's like, I don't know what this means. <laughs> and then they eventually came up with the term American black. And then I eventually just started telling people yeah. I'm just like President Obama. You, cause that was, cause they all yeah. knew who he was. <laughs> it was like this huge uh, media event, of course. So the, it was the easiest way to describe it. But that term mm -hmm. African-American and things like that does not exist out as soon as you get outside the American borders. Cause people get real confused real quick. Like, oh, what part of Africa are you yeah. from? 
Right, exactly, right? You're just American, right? When you go, like, it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting that in other countries, right, like, we are what we should be here, which is just American. There's no distinction in terms of, like, Black, white, all this other stuff. You just come from America. And that's what America really needs to aspire to, right? We need to, not even, we, we are aspiring to that. People in power who want to keep these distinctions as part of our culture need to go somewhere because we are Americans, right? Like you said, so you've, you've seen a significant shift now. So we're seeing this overlap of terms, which I think usually happens, right? So when you kind of saw that with like the, the difference between like Negro transitioning into Afro-American, right? Back when you were talking about, and so now we're seeing this overlap of African-American and black or black American, right? And so I think in the, you know, the coming decades, it's gonna shift significantly. So it's just all gonna be black. I don't think we're gonna be saying African-American for too much longer. Um, and also, again, it's like we were just talking about, right? There are so many other types of black people that aren't African-American. And so if you say African-American, you are almost inherently excluding all these other people who would not call themselves African-American, right? They're Caribbean-Americans, the people who are actually from Africa, right? Nigeria and Ghana, et cetera. Um, they don't believe that they're African-American for the most part as a group identity, right? When we're talking about that broad scale. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting that we have these designations but then we leave the country, folks are like, you're American, all of you. Okay, well, color you are American, right? Yeah, but the first rule you learn about traveling is never let people know you're American if you can avoid it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's kind of hard if you don't, you know, depending on where you go and mm. what, you know, if you have to talk, because I feel like obviously when I open my mouth, people know, oh, you're American. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I definitely, I, I kind of follow that same rule. I usually don't, and usually what ends up happening too, if I don't open my mouth, I'm in other countries they assume that I'm whatever type of black person is closest to like that area. So mm -hmm. if I'm like and I'm in Germany, like I might be French or something, uh, right? When I actually went to Ireland when I was a kid and uh, they definitely thought I was French, like uh, French the whole time. Cause I guess that was their only reference for, for black people um, was, was French immigrants. Uh, so yeah, it's really interesting. That's crazy. Oh man. So tell me some of uh, your experience because I've seen you post some stuff here and there and I haven't mm -hmm. uh, really ever gotten to go back and forth on it with you. But uh, tell me some of your experiences about being black in academia. I've seen you share. I saw you, I think you shared an article like 20 minutes before we got on this call uh, yeah. about some of the how black people are or black academics are looking to leave their jobs because of their experience things. So just share some of your personal sure. experiences if you don't mind. Yeah, I will. And so, I mean, I think this is, this is where, you know, the, I guess the, the academic freedom comes into play so that I can, you know, I've already identified my university. So people know I work there. I'm not shy about that on online as well either, which generally people are supportive of, which I appreciate. Um, I do know that other jobs, you can't do that. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's so crazy, the experience of being a black person in academia, um, particularly at most of the schools that you could work at, which are going to be predominantly white. Um, so I'm the only black person, well, the only black faculty member in my department, there are over 20, like 25, almost 30, you know, between lecturers and faculty members in my department. I'm the only black person. Um, they don't even know, like when the last time they had a black person was, or that they hired a black person in my department. Um, so we're kind of trying to figure that out. There are a couple other people of color, which are mostly recent additions. I mean, so just the experience of, of being in that, right, I, I definitely experienced microaggressions constantly right um maybe even more than i was expecting to i kind of came into this you know knowing like it's not going to be like an hbcu i'm probably going to experience some some different things um but yeah i mean it's it's insane how regular the microaggressions are right people just make these sly little comments um and most of the time they don't think that they're saying anything right like i, I definitely 
appreciate my department in the sense that everybody generally is pretty collegial. Everybody's pretty nice. Um, and there, I have some really great colleagues that I'm working with. Um, but then, you know, some people just don't understand that some of the things that they're saying are very marginalizing, right? They may make comments here and there, um, they kind of question or just make me feel not welcome the way that they're talking about certain things. Um, and so, yeah, this is, and these are experiences that Black academics have all over the place. It's, a, it's incredible uh, the amount or the similarity uh, in the experiences that people have at different institutions, whether you're at these institutions in the South or the North or the Midwest or wherever you are. Um, the experience of being a black person, which usually means you're one of very few, right? Um, so like when I go to meetings and stuff, depending on what that meeting is, I may be one of only a, a handful or none uh, other black people in the room. Um, and so, yeah, it's just crazy the way that people don't seem to understand that what they're saying and doing, again, even without the intentionality behind it, without any negative intention, it just creates an environment where it doesn't feel as welcoming as it could be, right? Um, and it can be really problematic. I mean, there have been times where I literally have just like walked out of a meeting because it was like, if I stayed there, it was going to be bad. Like I have an Apple Watch. And so what I've been doing now for the past couple of years is sometimes when I'm in these meetings, like I literally will check my heart rate and I will see that it has spiked, right? Like I was in a meeting today. Somebody said something that I thought was a little crazy. So I said something about it and I checked my heart rate and it had gone up like 15 heart beats per minute in, in like a span of like 10 seconds. Just because it's, again, it manifests itself physically sometimes, like the stuff that you end up having to deal with, um, you know, or the people marginalizing your work or suggesting that you're doing me search, right? Like because I'm a black person who studies race, like I can't possibly be considered in the same ways as other people who study other things. Even though like white men have been studying other white people all the time they built career they built the whole sociology is built on that right um so yeah it's just this it's this crazy experience there's all these positives of course too but then just the fact that again i am one of very few it, it gets to be a lot sometimes um and it's one of the only things that saves me is i get to talk to other black people um and other people of color you know, too as well um, who are experiencing some of the same things and we can kind of commiserate together on like how we're going to try to fix things or this is some bullshit or whatever it is right yeah and i think that that ability to commiserate is something that helps out a lot. I, I know that if there have been times in my uh, careers and also just in my life that I didn't have somebody to kind of experience that. And then it's so hard to explain it to somebody who just does not have any idea of what you're talking about because then you don't get the right response. You don't get the right answer and everything. So I can definitely mm -hmm. feel you there. Obviously uh, I've been more military so government and then uh, also in the corporate and i can say the experiences yeah. aren't any different over there microaggressions all the time including again it's always funny to me because uh i'm articulate as they like to say <laughs> um, <laughs> so well yeah exactly <laughs> uh uh I, I think that there's a certain level of comfort that some people feel around me and then they start to say some things maybe they they wouldn't have said if i if i mm -hmm. came in with my uh my africa chain on um but <laughs> but and so i've heard people say things as like, oh it's just really convenient you know i'm not saying anything i'm just saying it's really convenient that they have a non-white leader over there like as if the person can't be the leader based upon their right. own merit they had it's because right. of them being to that uh, belonging to a group or something like that as well so uh, i definitely am with you there I, I definitely think that there's a lot of things that just go by and you so you stop for a second you're like wait a minute you know i don't know if you're like me but every once in a while something will it'll actually get under my radar for a half second then until i'm walking away and i'm like wait you know, hold, hold on hold on hold on hold on oh yeah they just they say what i think this that is. happens all the time yeah that's probably the worst part about it right is that mm -hmm. like it's not even that obviously that these things are happening is a problem. But for me, what I've discovered is that one of the bigger issues, and this is what the research actually shows as well, is that you 
are thinking about if it's a problem, right? Like maybe mm -hmm. nothing happened, but the fact that you have to even pause and think like, wait a minute, did that really happen? Did they say that? Did they mean it that way? I don't know. Like that's so much mental work that you have to do that takes you away from doing all the other stuff. You can't be as effective because you're like, what is, did they say that? Did they really say it? Or like you said, you think about it later, and you're like, I should have said something because I knew they'd said something there and I didn't respond the right way. That's happened to me so many times where I'm like, I did not have the response that I have now that I've been sitting with it for 15 minutes. It's, a, it's almost like that syndrome, I think, for people who don't have that experience because uh, they don't belong to certain groups or anything like that. Uh, I think the best way to say it is imagine having an argument with somebody and then you're in the shower later, you're like, I should have said that. That's exactly, <laughs> exactly. what the comeback. That's yep. 20 times a day. <laughs> it's basically what exactly. it is all the time. So, so tell me what it's been like for you uh, this year. Obviously, we've had a lot of uh, racial turmoil, a lot of racial mm -hmm. awakening for a lot of people and a lot of conversations around that topic. Being a race scholar yourself, do you think that this is a good place that we're in because it's at the surface? Or do you think mm -hmm. that there is some concerns around the way that this is all being handled and kind of coming to fruition? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? I think, I mean, I, I think it's probably like all of that wrapped up. Um, so I do think that there are obviously lots of problematic things that are happening, right? We continue to see all these things, the deaths of, of Black people at the hands of police for no reason, right? People calling the cops on Black people for doing stuff that nobody should get the cops calling them for, um, just mismanagement of various things, uh, including this pandemic, right? So there's all this stuff that's happening that's very problematic. Um, and it's stuff that's been happening, right, for decades and decades longer, right, hundreds of years. Um, so in some sense, it's kind of like par for the course. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, it's interesting. I feel like right now things are, there's something different about this time. And I don't know if that's just me, like there's like some small part of hope that's in the background kind of bubbling up inside of me. But I do feel like it's a little bit different. And I do think that a big part of that is this pandemic, right? So everybody is essentially stuck at home a lot more than what they were before. And so they're glued to the television, they're glued to their phones, they're seeing all this stuff. And because of the technology that we have now, um, people can see these things happening either live or somebody recorded it and you watch it later. Um, whereas, you know, back in the you know, 50s, 60s or, or times past where these things were happening, people couldn't see it as much, right? You just had to read about it in the newspapers and it's kind of easier to dismiss. When you see a policeman actively kneeling on the neck of George Floyd until he died, right? And you see it play out on a screen, you can watch it a hundred times, um, that changes things. And so I think in that sense, I feel like there's some positivity to what's going on because people are seeing it so much more. And so it can be much more ubiquitous. And people are, there are lots of folks, in particular white Americans, who are saying like, oh my God, I just really didn't know. And whether you believe they should have known or not, right? Like now it's in their face in a way that it wasn't before. And so I do like that aspect of it. Um, but beyond that, I mean, all of that stuff I think is good. I do think that for people who engage in work related to this stuff, right? So people like me or a lot of my colleagues or other folks in different areas, um, right, who are studying, who study these things, um, who study police violence or study race or study like uh, social inequalities broadly, all these different things. Uh, this can also be a really trying time, right? Like I've been, I feel like my level of stress has significantly increased um, the past couple of years, um, in particular this past like six or seven months, um, more than ever, right? Like I'm, I'm having, I, w I had this one, like something happened that was a while ago, a few months ago. And I was like, what the heck is wrong with me? I don't know. I was like running around my house, like just looking weird. And I had no idea what was going on. And I talked to my wife and she was like, oh, I think you're having some kind of an anxiety attack. That's never happened to me ever in life, right? I had, I had no idea that this was even a thing I could do. 
And I think a lot of it is because of all the stuff that's happening. You're so inundated with it. You can't get away from it. Um, and you see it so much that it just becomes a lot. And so for me, I've been really, really delving into like, how do I manage self-care? How do I figure out how to like be able to step back when I need to? Because I, that's not sustainable, right? I can't live through this. And so it's really, it's kind of this weird balancing act that I'm not entirely sure that I feel like I'm ever going to learn how to balance, but I'm trying to get there because yeah, it's like, it's just a lot that's happening right now with everything. Um, but you can't really get away from it. And it also is what I chose to study. So I'm like, ah, I gotta, I gotta engage. Uh, I'm with you there. I think that uh, I've tried to give myself a Facebook curfew uh, where I don't go <laughs> on there past a certain time because again, the way that my mind works is I try to, my hope in any conversation I have, whether I agree or disagree, is that we share some knowledge and that we try to help each other and that I'm not mm -hmm. looking to disprove you. I'm not looking to make you wrong. I'm not looking to do any of that stuff. And so I try, I tend to go through that whole conversation in my head. Well, if I say this, what might they say back? Yeah. Well, how would I respond to that? Do I know mm -hmm. that? Do I need to look into that some more, you know, before I have that conversation? Because that's another thing that I think that uh, I don't know if you've said yet or not, I, but I, as a black person, sometimes feel responsible to know all black things. And if I don't, then I feel like I'm doing a disservice to whoever I'm talking to or the black community, because now I miss an opportunity to, to share some knowledge there, you know, about something. Uh, and I think that that's an amazing mm -hmm. amount of pressure that at least I put myself under sometimes. And I can imagine that others do as well. So I just have to like, I can't look at Facebook past, like I say, 9 PM or something like that, because then if not, I'm having this whole conversation with myself yeah. and the other person didn't do anything wrong. They just posted something, whatever they mm -hmm. did and stuff like that. Uh, and I never even commented, but I'm already having that whole conversation in my head. So that's, that's a me thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Right. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I've been contemplating taking a break from Facebook is because for me, like, it's so hard to scroll past something that somebody posted. And if I see it and I'm like, that's wrong, like it's flat out wrong, or they don't have their, they don't have the right perspective because, um, you know, maybe they're missing some information or something like that. Right. Like in my mind, I feel like I have to like say something. Um, and so I'm trying to learn that I don't have to say anything. It's totally fine if I don't. Right. And then also if I say something, even sometimes it's not going to, it may just result in me feeling even more like uh, anxious, tired, like frustrated or whatever, um, right? You know, I don't want to argue with folks. I like just having the conversations with people, um, but they don't end up being fruitful. So I'm doing the same thing. I'm getting off of Facebook early. Some days I don't even look, like if it's one of those days, right? Like today might be one of those days where I just don't open it up again because of stuff that happened earlier. I don't want to deal with it. So I'm going to watch some stuff on TV that has nothing to do with the news. I'm going to, you know, I'm talking to you about these things, like stuff like this so I can get away from because yeah, you got you to gotta find a way to separate yourself out from some of that stuff sometimes. Absolutely. And as you've said before, I think some of the disparities that we see in health outcomes for Black people is due to that stress. Because we know mm -hmm. that stress and uh, cortisol, cortisone, uh, cortisol, I think. Cort yeah, cortisol. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cortisone is exactly right. No, <laughs> But uh, the stress hormone has a lot of negative effects on the body, causing inflammation, all kinds of other stuff. And mm -hmm. because of that stress that Black people inherently feel through a lot of the experiences that we have and a lot of the ways that we have to live, it, it doesn't cause, but exacerbates those health outcomes, I think, for a lot of those situations that we're talking about. So turning off yeah. that responsibility factor, even if you can only do it for five minutes, helps so much. And I think it's important. And one of my favorite things that I've seen over the past couple of years um, is the rise of the self-care movement in the Black community, mm -hmm. because that was not always the case. It was just, you know, nope. suck it up, you know, stiff upper lip type thing and just move on. And now we're actually trying to take care of each other. We're actually trying to take care of ourselves. You know what I mean? Uh, seeing yeah. Black men say, I love you to each other is like, bro, that's dope. Because, it, you, you know, it didn't used to be that way. You always have to say right. something about it and like make it like, oh, I'm not gay, blah, 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 whatever. You couldn't show that uh, that kind of emotion without doing something. So I'm loving how a lot of that stuff is changing. And I think, especially in these times, 
uh, of emotional turmoil, racial turmoil the world is going through to show that kind of support for one another. It's, it's a beautiful yeah. thing. And I think the one thing that's keeping me optimistic, as you said, and holding on to that little bit of hope too, is that America has never changed because it was willing to. It always changed because it was forced to. And this is right. another moment where hopefully we're forcing ourselves to get that 1% better than we were the day before that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, I agree, right? That's one of the things I, I'm maybe strangely or different from a lot of other people. I'm one of those folks that's like, you can legislate morality. Like it's probably the only way you can actually get it done often is because when you wait for people to just come to the realization themselves or just change on their own, like that takes forever where it never happens, right? People don't mm -hmm. want to change these things. And if you think back to any steps that we've seen in anything, right? Not even just like socially, uh, seat belts, right? Like that, that wasn't a thing until like people were like fighting over, right? The smoking laws, that wasn't a thing until people like raised enough uproar and fought over it to change the laws, which then took a generation to change the behavior. Right. And so, yeah, like you, like you said, you gotta, we gotta force it, right? That's why I'm such a fan of direct action, of protesting, of all these different things, because that's what's actually going to get us somewhere. And that's what history has taught us is those are usually the only ways that any significant change is reached is when people stand up and say, hey, like, we are not going to take this anymore. We're going to cause enough noise and enough disarray until you actually do something to address these issues that we've been bringing to your attention forever. So do you have an example of some of that legislative morality you're thinking about uh, for the times now or something that you'd like to see? Uh, I mean, so I'm a big proponent of the, uh, so I mean, it's, people are calling it the, the defund the police movement. I, mm -hmm. I have conversations with folks all the time about, you know, maybe the name needs to be changed because that's not actually what the movement is, is saying. They're not trying to defund police so much as reallocate police funds, but it's yeah. just, running around yelling, reallocate police funds, like doesn't really work as well as defund. Um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of the reallocation of, of policing funds. I, I think that, that the movement encompasses also the ideas of just significantly changing how police do their jobs, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that it, this is something that needs to be legislated because we see consistent issues with how police are treating folks. And what we see too is, right, interestingly, um, a lot of people seem to think that it's just white cops enacting these things against black people mostly or other folks. No. All cops, right? All one of my mentors, uh, uh, Dr. Rayshawn Ray, right, who's with the Brookings Institute and University of Maryland, he does research on this and he talks about how the research shows <laughs> that it's across race for cops. They, they all have these, in, these biases because it's part of the training, it's part of the ways mm -hmm. in which they are taught to do these things. We don't have a great training system for police. We ask police officers to do so much more than they should be doing, right? We mm -hmm. ask them essentially to be. Uh, if like healthcare workers and mental health care officials and all this stuff, they shouldn't be doing that, right? They should really just be keeping order. Um, and so if we can, if we work to redo that, then I think that that will help in some ways to legislate morality for how people understand what police should be able to do or not be able to do, right? Like it will create much more of a, a system of accountability for policing. Um, we, and there are various ways that people, you know, much smarter than me in some of those areas are figuring out how to do that. But to me, that's one example of how we can legislate morality of not killing black people disproportionately mm. particularly for no reason like when they're unarmed or when you know uh dylan roof shoot up shoots up a church uh, full of black people and they buy the man burger king right like we don't want to see this happening because we know it can happen in a different way they're not doing it even though we're bringing it to attention over and over and over again let's legislate it and then maybe after a little while all of a sudden that'll be more embedded in the actual system itself
And just to piggyback off the point there, I believe the gentleman's name is Geronimo Yanez, which is one of the officers, the officer actually, sorry, that shot mm-hmm. Philando Castile. So yeah. you're, that's indicative of your point. It's not as specific to just white police officers. It is police officers across yeah. the board because of the fear-based training, because of a lot of those mechanisms. And one of the things that's always funny to me, and I, I'm not trying to discredit anybody who shares this, I think it's just adding a little, per, my perspective to it. When they share things like, why was Dylan Roof taken alive and unharmed? Why was the... Uh, the uh, sorry aurora shooter taken in alive mm-hmm. and unarmed what you're talking about is the proof that training works because they send their more trained officers to apprehend those individuals right. because they're seen as such a threat so that's why they're apprehended with n- less uh physical harm to them and not being sure. shot because mm-hmm. they are sending people who actually know what they're doing so i will say right. that I am not a direct proponent of defund the police but i'm not a direct op- uh, excuse me i'm not in direct mm-hmm. opposition to it either because my overall position is this do something research yeah. research the problem research a solution and enact that solution and then let's see what happens yep. you know what i mean so if that's defunding the police because you're spreading out those resources so they don't have to take on the 30 jobs they work right now so be it you know if it's actually uh making training uh, excuse me making but training part of their budget that they cannot reallocate then so be sure. that you know what i mean because that's another yeah. thing working from government i've seen the training budgets get cut all the time because we need oh, this yeah. we need that they're going to move those around well if you uh, link them to uh, the funding where they can't be moved, maybe that makes it better mm-hmm. as well. So you're not necessarily defunding them, you're reallocating their own funding, you know right. what I mean? Exactly, yeah. And so that that's my overall opinion And when you're talking about that type of legislation, excuse me, legislated sure. morality, I would agree with you mm-hmm. there. Uh, I, I think that something has to do be done in police reform, but one thing we need to get across, that does not mean police need to be abolished. It does not mean that any of us are uh, anti-police. I have um, many people that I know who who have been or are police. I also know that Mm -hmm. I would call the police and have called the police for different uh, needs. But what we can say is that something needs to change. It's the same way that you look at, say, the military and the sexual assault situations they have going on. Something needs to change. Mm -hmm. Am I anti-military for saying that? Well, my 11 years of service would probably say no. So that's what we're talking about. Stop seeing the need for change as a need for abolition or just saying well, you're something wrong with what you're doing. And I think mm-hmm. that's the conversation that a lot of people just don't want to have. They'd rather be disingenuous and say back to blue and those type of, you know, mantras. Uh, but to their credit and to your, what you just said too, defund the police has kind of become that mantra as well for the abolitionists who are not central sure. to that movement, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And we, we just need more dialogue about a lot of these things. I think people, you know, it's, you need catchphrases and stuff for certain things, right? Because again, if it's on a sign well, when you're out protesting or you're trying to raise awareness, you need to be able to say like a catchy phrase. But like the the real thing is the dialogue that happens. And so what's interesting is that people get so caught up with the folks that are like yelling these things out that they're not even paying attention to that. The folks who actually have put out very detailed plans for how they could like enact changes. And those plans don't say any, like they don't coincide with anything that like, a lot of the avid people that are just like shouting things out are saying, right? Um, I think you need both of those for sure, right? Because that's what helps to enact the change or to get people to even listen to the proposal that you're going to put forth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, people, I mean, there are people that are researching these things and understand them very well um, that have put forth proposals that make a lot of just practical sense. And then I think if people actually looked at, they could get on board or at least use that as a starting place to be like, hey, let's come to the table and figure out what we can do because we obviously know something needs to change. So, and, and, you know, we just need more talk. And I think that's a product of the political manipulation that happens, not Mm -hmm. specifically by any particular group or any particular person, 
but by the totality of all the things that are going on with that. And so they make it to where, again, you're joining a tribe. I'm joining a pro-police yeah. tribe. I'm joining an anti-police tribe and blah, 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 whatever, you know, but I've seen the video. The first time that I saw somebody describing the police shouldn't be doing what they were, uh, all the different jobs they're doing was by uh, a chief or a deputy of police or something like that. Like the head guy mm. from this, I think it was in Texas. I forget, but he's saying police aren't yeah. supposed to be doing all this. Police have expanded their job and their roles for so many years. And that is why you see all these things starting to happen more often, or I shouldn't say that because I, I don't know the data and if it's happening more often, if we're just more aware, but nonetheless, right. you're seeing these things at the rate that you are because you're asking them to do a million jobs. So if you ask police to do what a police officer is supposed to do, you get better results. It's the same thing. Yep. If we went to, if I went to you right now, I'm like, Hey man, I need you to go ahead and put this foundation in this house. You're like, yo, let's, I'm not trained for that. That's not, I'm that's not, not what I'm going to do. <laughs> you go get right, a messed exactly. up house, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with, you know, we, we see the same type of thing happening with education, right? Like we've, mm -hmm. over years and years and years, educational systems have become like all these things that are not, they're not intended to do outside of just educating people, right? Like babysitters, yep. healthcare providers, food providers, right? Like that's stretching the budgets thinner. It's making people do more work than they need to be doing. And so then they can't focus on what they actually should be doing, which is teaching, right? And so, you know, what makes sense. And I think if you were at, like, if we go back to the policing, if you ask, when you, when you ask, not if, when you ask police um, about all the things that they're doing, most of them say like, I don't, you know, th these are things that I should be doing. It would be much easier and it would relieve me of a lot of burden if I could focus on just this aspect of it that is the policing and not the social welfare aspect of it, right? Not the mental health aspect of it. Like you don't need to be doing all that stuff, right? Especially when our training is for police is like a few weeks. Mm -hmm. like that that's absurd right in and of itself like we should you give people guns to go out to shoot people mm -hmm. potentially and you only get trained for a few weeks like that doesn't make sense right like there are much better models around the world uh military right like why is it that our military are, are so well trained in de-escalation tactics but our police can't be right like you wouldn't see the same types of things happening um and you don't see the same types of things happening with a lot of our military forces when they're in other countries or even if they're domestically doing things because of the training that they receive that is just significantly, we'll say more comprehensive, right, mm -hmm. than what a lot of police officers are getting. Well, and I think the thing that you touched on there, and it was a point that I was getting ready to make, so we're, we're in sync on that, is because in the military, the military police do policing. They, right. they have healthcare professionals. They have people yeah. uh, who do, you know, contracting or do construction. They have all those different delineations of jobs. And that's exactly what we're asking for in the police force. If the police force mm -hmm. of uh, your average neighborhood was only asked to do what military police did and got the training the military police did, they'd be a lot better at it. You know, yeah. and again, I'm, I'm obviously biased because I come from a military <laughs> background. So I believe the military police are generally good, but I've heard other uh, officers can, you know, say that as well. They like the police officers mm -hmm. that come from the military. They believe that they're yeah. more calm, they're better trained, they're ready to handle a lot more of those type of things. You know what I mean? So, absolutely, yeah. So pivoting I to agree. something, I want to say a phrase, and I want you to tell me your thoughts on it, and then we can we can go back and forth if we if we disagree, if we agree, whatever it is, whatever. But this is not a phrase that I am saying that I believe in. I'm not saying I don't believe <laughs> in because I don't want to I don't want to bury the lead. I want to let you know my answer cool. to you guys. Uh, black people can't be racist. <laughs> that is that is funny i i mean i literally was just talking to my students about this a couple of weeks ago um in my race class all right so <laughs> here's what it is i will say that yes black people can treat people differently or negatively based on their race they can exhibit racial biases right they can they can discriminate against people based on their race um 
the thing about this though is that when you think about racism and how it works racism really is one it's not about individual it's not about the individuals right individual people enact racism yes but racism broadly in our country is not about individuals right even if all the racist individuals were to go away or change their minds we'd still have racism because it's systemically embedded in our in our country um so yeah black people and other people of color can be quote unquote racist but really the way racism works is that it involves power right and if it doesn't involve power to like change things reallocate resources keep people from doing things um, then it's not as significant, right? It doesn't have a significant of an impact. And so black people collectively just don't have the power to enact racism in the same ways that white Americans do. So can they be racist? Yes, they can say and do racist things, but does it have the same impact as uh, racism more broadly? Absolutely not, no. What and are your thoughts? That'd be this interesting. Yeah, and so I'm in alignment with the way you explained it. What I'm not in alignment okay. with, not necessarily with you, but with that, that phrase, is how it is ignorant purposely i feel for most people because most people who say black people can't be racist are somewhat educated uh is mm -hmm. ignorant of what that person means they know what yeah. the average person means when they say racism they don't mean the systemic structures they don't mean the history right. of racism and all that even though those exist and black people simply do not have the power to enact those yes but that's not what they're saying and so when you say mm -hmm. a phrase like black people can't be racist you are now uh, kind of disinviting that person from the conversation because they're going to kind of check out because again, you have to set it up in a way that makes it clear to them what you mean. And so answering it the sure. way you did is I think the right way to do it. You're like, yes, black mm -hmm. people can take racist actions. Black people can be individually racist. They can do all this stuff, but there's a s other piece of the racism that we're talking about here. And so yeah. I, I get concerned when I hear people say that phrase or parrot that phrase really is what I feel like a lot of them are doing because mm -hmm. they are, again, willfully, I feel so, being ignorant of what you're saying to someone. Yes, everything that you're saying is correct because racism is more than just your individual actions and how I interact with another mm -hmm. human being, but you know that that other person isn't necessarily taking it that way, so you need to elaborate. You need to not just parrot a phrase and get something that can go on a sign and, and go mm -hmm. out there and actually have that conversation and invite them into the understanding of what we're trying to actually get to. Yeah, yeah, and so I think a, a part of what, why that ends up happening is, like you said, right, most people, uh, well, so the the what goes along with that phrase that we were talking about how you know other people know what folks are talking about when they ask about who is being racist or not um so what i know from you know the research and stuff that i'm doing is that the vast majority of people right your average american they don't really understand what racism is they just they simply don't they don't have a good understanding of it they don't definitely don't understand it as a systemic structural thing uh, right that's embedded in our country and so that ends up being a problem in and of itself. And so one of the things that I've been saying a lot more recently, right, these are not things that I, you know, made up myself, right, like, the, I'm, this is on built off of other scholarship and other research that other people have doing have been doing for years, is that to me, um, I think the questions uh, that the question that kind of underlies that phrase uh, of, you know, can black people be racist or not is, uh, is who can be racist or who is being racist. And I think that that question is the wrong question. I think it is a question that is very distracting right from the because the bigger broader more significant picture is systemic and structural racism and so when you're at when people most people when they're asking about who can be racist they're doing so with the intention of being able to like dissipate that conversation right to be able to say like haha 
you're racist too, which means you can't point to me and talk about my racism or about white people broadly as racist. You can't do that because now we're focused on the fact that you can be a racist and you can be a racist, right? And so I, I, like I tell my students and other people, I think that's the wrong question, right? I think the question you should be asking is what forms of racism are uh, more significant and have the most significant outcomes, right? Because racism is not about intentions, it's about outcomes. Mm -hmm. It's about what happens, right? And so if you're, I, to me, like I said, just don't, don't ask that question, it's the wrong one. Focus more on like, well, what forms of racism exist? How are they problematic? And what can we do to fix them? Not like, who's a racist, are you or not? That's why I don't really actually run around calling people racist anymore that much, because mm -hmm. I don't know that it's very helpful. Um, it definitely is true sometimes, right? But it's not as helpful as let's talk about racism, structural, systemic, ideological, and how then people can contribute to that, even if they don't know they are, or if they don't mean to, right? I just want to say for a second there, you sounded like the worst episode of Oprah ever. Like, and you can be a racist and you can be a racist. <laughs> but I, I think I agree with everything you just said, because it is usually pointed out to be disingenuous in the conversation. But also, I think sometimes people say it as a way of not having the conversation. And I'm talking specifically yeah. in this sense, uh, you know, and usually we're not supposed to do this in public, but I'm gonna go ahead and do it. Uh, specifically in that sense, when black people say the phrase that black people can't be racist, they are mm -hmm. not adding to the conversation. They are looking at another way to shut that conversation down. Instead of having the conversation you're talking about and teaching somebody about systemic and structural racism, they wanna say that we don't have the power to be racist. Again, which is a factual statement, but it is not, mm -hmm. uh, not making the conversation better to say that. I think you're, you're, you're saying something that is true, but not helpful. And I think we get our caught in those a lot. And I think pivoting back to our, one of the conversations we had kind of before we came online and a little bit in this conversation, that's exactly what happens on Facebook all the time. People are not yeah. adding to the conversation. They're saying things that either, again, come from a, a politicized standpoint, they come from a, a tribal standpoint, and they don't add, they just shut the conversation down or they pivot it off its main topic. Uh, mm -hmm. and I hate when I do this. I always forget it. I think that's the, the straw man fallacy or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yep. and so, yeah, exactly. And so I think, that, again, I think that's one of the ways we can all get better if we agree to have genuine conversations. Disagree if you must, do whatever you need to do, but have a genuine conversation. Don't just shut it down with phrases and stuff. Like One of the ones I always go back to is uh, whenever you start talking about sexual assault, like, well, women sexually assault men too. I'm like, okay. But how does that add to the conversation? Nobody's talking about that. Uh -huh. And again, if we want to talk about percentages, you know what I mean? You're not going to get anywhere right. with that conversation. So, mm -hmm. uh, but. yeah, it's really crazy that that ends up happening. And a lot of a lot of it too is ends up being uh, you know just fallacies in logic that people have. Right? I took a class on logic randomly in undergrad, and it was so intriguing because it kind of clued me into this idea that most of the time when we're having arguments, we're actually arguing two different things. And if you're not arguing about the same thing, you're never going to be able to get to an agreement or an understanding, even not even an agreement, an understanding because you're talking about A and I'm talking about B. And so you keep pushing B or I keep pushing B, you keep pushing A, right? Instead of like us both talking about A and then moving on to B, right? Like that's what ends up happening on Facebook and all these other places is because folks are just like, let me, this is what I think. And it has not, has nothing to do with maybe the original question that was asked or the article that was shared or the actual perspective that was given. They're just, arguing a point and they don't realize they're actually arguing about two completely separate things. And, and I think another uh, piece of that, as you're kind of touching on there too, it's our, our fear of being wrong, especially mm -hmm. publicly. 
we don't we for whatever reason we're we're uncomfortable being wrong so we either a don't enter into conversations where we are not completely sure of what we're talking about or b we just keep moving the goalposts so we can never actually be wrong or don't admit it anyway and i think that was one of the things that i wanted to do when i started having these conversations with people it's like i want to be wrong let me go out there you know what i mean uh i think i learn a lot more from being wrong than i ever did from being right I don't need to invite a bunch of people in the room who believe what I believe, who already uh, don't know what I, I know, and I can just share that information. That's not necessarily that beneficial. But if I'm going out there and I'm talking to somebody like yourself, you know, who can give that kind of perspective or something like that, and I can be wrong and have the, the gumption, if you will, to admit that I'm wrong and also just take the risk of doing so, I think that there's a lot more value in that. And again, I want to ask you a question. Again, it's not in your, your, stu- your topic mm-hmm. of study or anything like that, but it's something that I always think about. Is social media broken or are we unable to deal with it as it exists because of who, who we are as a culture? Mm. Um, I mean, it's probably a little column A, a little column B, but mostly broken, I think, right? And it, it's and broken in some ways because of uh, the ways in which it was put together, right? And so just like almost every other thing in our country, right? Uh, the people who were putting a lot of these programming in these social media platforms and all these things together, they tend to be very homogenous, right? It tends to be the same group of people, um, typically some conglomeration of white folks, usually white men, right? Who are the ones creating these things because they're the ones that were allowed in these spaces to do so. And um, just as a fact of that, right? If you only have one group doing something, particularly a group that isn't thinking about, you know, the perspectives of other folks, then it's gonna, it's definitely gonna be biased in that sense, right? So there's that aspect of it. And then also just the way like the algorithms and things are put together on social media, um, they effectively create echo chambers all the time, right? And so you just continue to be reinforced with people that are sharing the exact same views as you, the same thoughts and the same things. Um, you're sharing the same news stories. And so you don't even get to see a lot of the perspectives from different folks, right? Unless you're intentionally looking for it. Um, so that, I think in that sense, I would say that it's, you know, quote unquote broken, right? We could fix that. If it was, if those algorithms didn't do that to push people into these echo chambers, we'd probably see a lot of different things happening, even though we as people still tend to be very like uh, polarized often in terms of, you know, our belief systems or whatever it is that we're doing, right? It would probably be a better. Not completely, but better. I think that's one of the most interesting things to me uh, to kind of pay attention to what's going to happen over the next few years with social media, because I don't know if politicians are doing this on purpose, because, again, Mm -hmm. I don't want to put the tinfoil hat on and get into the conspiracy theory side of these things, or if they're ignorant of what the the outcome of what they're trying to do could be. And then since they're talking about Facebook fact checking people, Twitter fact checking Mm -hmm. people, you when you create these platforms and they become so ubiquitous, allowing them to fact check whoever they want is problematic on a lot of levels. Because as you said, Mm -hmm. if the algorithms have bias baked into them, what do you think an individual person looking at something going, Hey, that's not right. is going to have baked into them, you know? And, And I think that that's not something that anybody wants to have happen, but at the same time, what responsibility do these people have to stop the spread of disinformation? If we had a newspaper local to you, you know, or say Orlando or mm-hmm. Miami here uh, that was running false news uh, articles, something would be done about it. But because yeah. the, the, the news articles and everything are being posted by non-journalists and are being shared on, you know, infowars.org or whatever the heck the dot is for <laughs> Alex Jones site, um, then, then they kind of get a free pass on that. And then people go, oh, it's just opinion. You know, it's entertainment, it's media, whatever else. And, but then if it's fact-checked, 
then it, now it becomes part of the conspiracy theory. Now it becomes part of, oh, they're trying right. to censor this information. They don't want this information to get out. Plandemic, all these different things. When they're, again, they're factually wrong and dangerous. So it feeds into itself. And so I'm very concerned slash interested. Uh, I say interested from a place of privilege, obviously. Uh, but <laughs> watching these things take place. Because again, yeah. I want to know what's going to happen. What is going to break first? Are we going to let Mark Zuckerberg decide what is true? Or are we going to just continue to let people be misinformed because they just don't have the time or the interest to read past uh, a headline from something that somebody yeah. wrote, you know, in their basement? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting too, like that you're talking about this because I think that we, we maybe have a reckoning that's coming up or happening right now because we're looking at how this social media is playing into, social media and media broadly is playing into the, this pandemic, this global pandemic, right? And the information that's going out that is completely incorrect um, often, right, uh, misleading folks about these different things and what's really happening with this and what they should or should not be doing. It makes it much harder for us to know what the proper steps are, like whatever, wherever you are with it. Um, and so, unfortunately, I think what we can end up seeing is uh, a major, a major disaster, right, beyond what's happening now, right, it continue to get worse and worse and worse. And then we might see then eventually um, that a part of that was a result of how social media um, and these different algorithms and all these different things were impacting the ways in which people were thinking and then be able to respond to some of this stuff, right? And so, I like I said, I think there's a reckoning coming uh, sooner than we think because there's probably going to be some kind of major disaster in human, in human life uh, that points us into the, this idea of we need to do a little bit more with this information that's getting out. Um, and it really all it's going to take is, you know, one huge major thing where unfortunately lots of people lose their lives or you know other negative things happen and then maybe we'll be like ah we should have been regulating let's go ahead and do it now <laughs> uh, i don't know why i'm in a conspiracy theory mood right now but one yeah. of the things that i do fear uh from a very legitimate point of view because it's happened in history and you can trace uh passive to how these things happen is the knee-jerk reaction to that and to the overcorrection yeah. and to now where you're mm -hmm. creating these platforms that only say things that are things that people in power want to hear or things that people in power have allowed to have happen and those type of things. So I think we're in a very interesting place. And this is goes back to um, what I think a lot of us learned at some point, our parents lied to us because they had to, because they knew if they gave us a full information set, we'd make poor choices. And we're seeing that happen now, not saying the government's our parents, we're all grown adults here and everything, but just using that as an illustration. Uh, we're seeing what happens now when the information proliferates everywhere without people having the proper perspective of what that information means. So for one of my yeah. favorite things that came out recently uh, is COVID, purely COVID, only killed 10,000 people of the 160,000 people, I think it was, I'm like, okay, and? That's how a lot of these things work. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? AIDS doesn't kill a lot of people. It allows people to be killed by other things. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But again, people don't have that perspective. They don't have that information yeah. base. And so they look at that and they, now it's like, oh, well, it's all fake. It's all fake. If only 10,000 people died from it, the other 150,000 died from uh, pneumonia and all this stuff. I'm like, let me ask you something. How many people were dying from pneumonia before COVID? not 150,000 or 30 or 40, whatever it was, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, but again, I'm, I'm very interested and I'm worried about that because misinformation is being spread so quickly that we want to legislate, but that legislation now becomes a government entity doing something about free speech and also doing something uh, to say what is allowed and what is not. And who's going to do that? Is it going to be Mark Zuckerberg's, the, uh, the I think his name's Jack Dorsey uh, for Twitter? Or is it going to be Nancy Pelosi, you know, I mean, Mitch McConnell? Because 
I'll tell you what, I don't know which of those uh, options are worse. Those are all bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's not the whole, oh, both sides are bad thing. That's, that's saying politicians running those things are bad and unchecked billionaires who got billionaire, or became a billionaire at like 25. Also, <laughs> I don't need them telling me what information is real. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So it's, and we're going to have to figure that out right now. I think that's where, you know, where we can nod towards democracy as it should be, right? Where yeah. we have like groups of people that are responsible for doing these things. We would obviously then have to make sure that we pick the best people to do that. Uh, but yeah, like we don't, we definitely don't want it to be one person or two people or only like this one group of folks, right? It needs to be a much more all-inclusive, comprehensive, well thought out group of folks that can be responsible for this and it also needs to be something that you know we check continuously right that's probably that's one of the problems with america in general is that we put these things in place and then we just move so slowly at the government level in terms of like being willing to change things or shift things because we don't like change and but we really need especially at this the speed at which our technology and things happen now like we really need to be able to move these things along so much faster. I think Gary, I talk when I talk to Gary, right, about a lot of this stuff all the time. One one of the things he harps on the most is like when he's talking to various companies and things, or uh, in particular governmental uh, groups, right, that he might be working with, you know, city governments, local governments, states, etc. And they talk about having five and ten year plans. And he's like, what what kind of plan are you going to be able to enact in five? If it takes five years, things are going to be completely different five years from now, right? You need to be able to address these things much more quickly on the like at, continuously as things are happening and so we need to take that approach probably with something like social media and the information that's going out like we can't just put some kind of thing in place and then leave it alone for eight years right like we've got to be able to continuously update that and i think that's one of the dangers of the current system that we have is the public sector is so slow to move uh and mm -hmm. again that's by design and so that's concerning because then that makes the private sector that much more powerful. And so you have companies like Amazon, you have companies like Facebook, you have all these major powers and we are at their whim to how they feel and what they want to do and how they enact these different things. And one of the things that I've always tried to tell people is that nothing is free. So the fact that you were for free on Facebook means they are getting something off of you. They can, and that's data mining mostly is what yep. that ends up being. Um, and so now we're allowing these advertisers to be more direct with that, which also has its own biases, but then you're also now, they are the main media platform that uh, people get their mm -hmm. news from, which is again, absolutely terrifying because yeah. I can understand the perspective. Let's say for a, a second that CNN is biased. Uh, I can understand that perspective. But the answer to CNN being biased isn't to go to, again, Infowars.com and get your information that's unfounded. You, if right. CNN is biased, you either need to take CNN and make them less biased or create another reputable news source that isn't biased. But that's not the, what we're doing at all. We're creating Fox News. We're creating all these things. The first question should be, why is MSNBC uh, liberal and why is Fox News Republican, or excuse me, conservative, not the fact that just they are, and they're, oh, I'll get my news from this particular source. You know what I mean? I would yeah. love it mm -hmm. if we had the, uh, the capability as people to be entertained by somebody like you or I, well, not me, but maybe you, <laughs> just looking blankly at a screen and just reading facts. Like, I don't mean completely just like data-driven fact points, stuff like that, and moving on. But we, we, we don't. Nobody would watch it. That's C-SPAN, basically, and nobody watches that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. That's why, like, I mean, I, I definitely have cut down on watching CNN as much because what I've noticed over the years is it's just it it's not even news anchors it's political commentators right it's like a sport where right? you go out and you just like talk about stuff from your opinion loosely based on like these facts that you have right and all you're doing is commentating right the, the 24 new uh, 24 hour news cycle to me just like kills news 
because you have to fill the space all the time. Um, so I end up going to other sources too, but obviously I try to be a little bit more uh, thoughtful in those decisions, um, you know, for myself. And so like, I usually listen to, to NPR a lot. So I get a lot of news because I think that they do their, um, some of their segments, some of their segments are much, are still very commentary based. Um, but a lot of their news stuff, so like them, or they'll, I'll listen to like BBC news and things like that, where they're just like, here's the facts. Sometimes it actually bothers me. Like I find myself being bothered and I have to realize I need to step back from that because I'm like, you didn't give me an, an opinion. I didn't realize until later that it wasn't, it was because they weren't interjecting opinion into it. And in my mind, because I was interjecting opinion, I'm like, you should have been thinking about it this way. And I had to step back. It's like, oh no, it's actually better that they just told me what it was. And then I can think about it for myself and decide like, do I like it? Do I not like it? What, you know, do I agree with it? Do I disagree with it? As opposed to just being fed the perspective, right? Instead of being fed the news. And I think one of the interesting things that I don't know if you're going to ride with me on this thought process or not, but my academic background is business. And so when I see mm -hmm. things like that and I look at it, I'm like, this is what capitalism creates because what yeah. are these companies incentivized to do? Well, they're incentivized to give views. Well, how do you give views? Mm -hmm. We give views by sensationalism. We give views by giving these people what they want to see by giving them an opinion and type of stuff. So that creates those echo chambers that creates all these biases that we see. We have created it through our capitalistic endeavors. And this is always okay. what's funny to me. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read an article on Yahoo, but the comment section is a cesspool, absolute cesspool <laughs> on Yahoo uh, articles. Um, and it's always funny to me because it's always people disagreeing with the article. And I'm like, do you not understand that they get more, uh, they get the message to do more of these articles by you commenting? That's their feedback yeah. system. So you going in there and complaining about it doesn't matter what you're saying. You're giving them that feedback. You're seeing directly more of what you don't want to see because you don't understand right. how this system works. And I think we do that same thing when, like I said, when they talk about liberal media bias, uh, for example, it's really easy to clock because when they make a national news, where are they making a national news for? Well, the big markets. And what are the big markets? They're typically liberal. So that is easy. It's capitalism feeding that and it all goes mm. back into that system. And so everybody who claims they love capitalism uh, seems to hate the effects of it, which is just really, really yeah. funny to me. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I'm not, I, I'm kind of the same way, actually. Like I, I dislike, I think, there's forms of capitalism that could work, but whatever we're doing is not working, right? And in some senses, right? I think I, I probably have some Marxist tendencies, right? Which, you know, throws people off. Oh my God, I, I want to be a well, communist. They used to do this whole um, conversation out. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like, I, but I, I agree with the, some, of the, some of the critiques that people have levied against capitalism because the way in which we're doing it, it just leads to all these negative outcomes, which may or may not have been intended, right? We could go down the rabbit hole about that, but like that, you're right, it just leads to, these outcomes are a direct, uh, they're a direct outcomes of the way we do capitalism. And it's not working, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's making things worse, right? And it's just gonna continue to do this, right? We're gonna keep going further into this dystopian future where, you know, the, where everything is Amazon and, you know, our clothes, shoes, whatever, because that's who bought everything else that took over all the businesses right uh, we've got some company running all google running every all the internet information right it's this is how this works because we don't we have basically unregulated capitalism yeah. i i am pro capitalistic ideals mixed with mm -hmm. sociological and psychological responsibility i think exactly. that's ultimately what yeah. we need to get to and i don't see that so one of the examples i always go to and i i love it because it's hyperbole at its finest first of all but also because it usually has a visceral reaction with different people is america doesn't hate kim kardashian America hates that America loves Kim Kardashian because if Kim Kardashian isn't valued, she's not famous. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is you hate the fact that that's true. 
Because if not, yeah. Kim Kardashian would exist in a dark hole somewhere where nobody would ever see her. And that's capitalism. Yep. That's the basic foundation of capitalism right there is that we give attention, we give dollars, we do all these different things for those systems. And then we complain about those systems that we're directly supporting. And it's, it's mind boggling that people don't seem to get that. And the last thing I'll say on that particular topic for myself uh, is I don't think that Americans, um, at least none of the ones that I've seen, have the, the ability anymore to boycott. If you remember, how long did that Chick-fil-A boycott last? You know what I mean? And again, I'm not, yeah, saying, I'm, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't boycott anything. Vote with your dollars however you see fit. That's the way the system's supposed to work, right? Uh, but they, all they got was the dude say, I'm sorry. And then they went back to eating chicken sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Do you actually think that changed? <laughs> like no, you're not giving yeah. money to them anymore? Come on. Yeah, you gotta, I mean, you have to do sustained effort, right? People, I think people even when they think back, you know, historically to this now beloved civil rights, you know, time uh, during civil rights, right? That everybody really hated back when it was actually happening. Um, you know, like the the um, the bus boycotts. I mean, these were sustained efforts. These were years. This was not, this was not something that happened in a month and they just stopped riding a bus for a month. And a bus, they were like, desegregate. Like, no, these were, this was years and months of work of people boycotting of the sacrifice that it took right, to significantly change your life because that was the way you got to work, that was the way you got around, you got to do it a different way, right? And so it takes a lot of effort, continuous effort and continuous pressure to do that. Um, and I think obviously it's a lot harder now. I will say that I do think it's a lot harder to do effective boycotting now because um, of technology, because of the ubiquity of the, the access to all these things that we have, right? And so like, and then also, right, the cap- capitalism in such a way that we end up with these monopolies, even though we're not supposed to have monopolies. And so like, you can't only, you can only go to like one or two places, right? And so it becomes very difficult, um, particularly depending on where you live, um, right? Like I, so as an example, I, 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 in terms of my dollars, I try not to support like Home Depot, right? Because of, you know, political affiliations, et cetera. And so I've been trying to go more to Lowe's, but then I've been in places where like the only hardware store close to me at all was Home Depot. And so what am I gonna do? Like drive 40 minutes to go to Lowe's? No, I'm gonna go to Home Depot. Right. And so that's what ends up happening is it just gets much more difficult for us to do that. And it takes a lot more sacrifice. And I think people realize actually make something like a boycott work. Uh, and we especially like this, these generations of folks, we don't really people don't really want to do that. They don't want to be inconvenienced. Before we make the final pivot, I just wanted to touch on something really quick. Mm-hmm. You, for those who may just be hearing this and not actually watching it later, uh, when Jonathan was talking about the beloved civil rights movement, he uh, made like kind of a quote finger gesture. So go ahead and tell people what you mean by that. And no comment for me. Yeah. I'm in agreement. I know where you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's so crazy, right? Especially, and it's so relevant now since we see a lot of people, uh, we've had this really sustained um, effort with, you know, Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives and responsibility killing of George Floyd and other Black Americans, Breonna Taylor, etc. Um, and so people talk about, you know, they, all, they always talk about how you should have, uh, we should be doing things now the way that Dr. King and the people during the civil rights did, right? They were so peaceful. Um, they knew how to, to take this direct action. They weren't rioting in the streets. They weren't breaking things, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so they, people hype this up as though it is, this is this bygotten age where everything was done right. But what they don't realize is that Dr. King and all of the other civil rights people were trashed back then, right? They were talked about in the same exact ways as they were talked about now, right? I, was, I just shared a, a, like a, an old uh, newspaper, like a, like a cartoon that somebody had drawn about MLK 
um, that was from like the 1967 or sometime around there. And they showed Emma K in the cartoon form in front of like a burning city in the background. And they were talking about how there's some kind of joke about we'll continue our nonviolent protests next uh, next time or tomorrow, right? And so they talked about Dr. King and all these other people the same exact ways they're talking about now, right? But the memory in the United States is very short. And so people seem to act like this was an era, this golden age uh, of protests. And that was the right way to do it. When in reality, folks were really incensed back then to the same, uh, the same extent that they are now when they talk about Black Lives Matter and other protesters. In full agreement. So I'm gonna let your, your words stand on that topic. But uh, so the last thing I wanted to kind of get it, uh, get your take on and talk to you about is, uh, I know you have a background in Krav Maga, you're training in Krav Maga. So I want to know, uh, why did you pick that particular martial art? Mm -hmm. And then have you experienced, well, excuse me, do you have experience with other martial arts? Uh, or is it just that one? Sure. Um, so when I was a kid, I took karate for like maybe a year. Um, I was not good at it. I stopped doing it. I don't think I had the drive back then to do it. Um, but as like once I got older, so probably like mid twenties, um, I uh, I wanted to get into something. I wanted to you know just I, I felt like some kind of martial art was 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 interesting, and I I just ran into uh, Muay Thai by happenstance because I think I saw an ad somewhere, and so I took Muay Thai for a couple of years, and it was just fantastic experience. I thought it was a lot of fun for me. It was really practical because Muay Thai is also very like you can it's very street friendly, so you can use it in you know altercations if something happens. Um, and so I learned about Krav Maga from somebody else, a friend of a friend, I think, um, somewhere around that time. And the way they explained it, I was like, this sounds like it would be really interesting to learn and really beneficial, but I never could find a place that did it. And then I, once I moved here to Florida, it just so happened that I saw some advertisement for Krav Maga and it was like, sign up for 10 classes, a cheap, you know, some kind of cheap price and you can try it out. And so I did it and kind of fell in love. I mean, I think it's just such a fantastic um, martial art. Um, for me, I picked it because um, effectively what it's so Krav uh, Maga is what the, uh, the Israeli uh, police force uh, uses, right? That's the training that they get. Um, but it's very practical, right? So it's, it's a martial art that pulls from a lot of different martial arts. And so we use Muay Thai moves, we use wrestling moves, we use um, jujitsu moves, we use all these different martial arts. It, the, essentially what it is, is like, what's the fastest most brutal way that you can end an altercation that you might get in, right? You want to get it over with and get away. That's the whole point of, of Krav Maga. And so whatever is most effective at doing that, that is what you do. And so it constantly changes in terms of updating it. Like this is a better move you can do instead of this old one we did. So they, they constantly do that. Um, and again, it's also very practical, right? It's great for self-defense. Um, because again, the, the whole point of it is to, to get away from altercations. And so what mm -hmm. they teach you first is actually like, if you can run, just run, like don't fight. There's no point to do that, right? That, that's silly. You're putting yourself in harm's way for no reason. But if you need to fight, do it, get it done quickly. There are no rules. It's not about fighting fair, right? Like, so a lot of martial arts, you know, are kind of marked by sparring in a way that's, that's fair. You score points. You can't really do that in Krav Maga because the whole point of Krav is like destruction, right? Like I'm gonna put you down quickly and get away. Mm -hmm. um, and so we do light sparring, but you know, not, you can't do full out stuff. And usually when we spar, it's mostly just like boxing and kicking and stuff. Um, but yeah, I love it. I think it's such a great, uh, it's such a fantastic uh, martial art because it's very practical, right? And so one of the reasons why I wanted to do that was I mean, in all reality, just because of uh, being a black man in America, right? It's so, at any point of me walking around anywhere, something could happen, right? Somebody could decide, uh, particularly in different places that I'm, you know, might be living, 
Um, somebody could decide that I'm not supposed to be there. Um, you know, the world is a dangerous place, even if you're not a black person, right? I just think it's obviously more dangerous in some ways if you are black. And so I wanted to be able to defend myself and other people as well too. And this was, I thought just a very practical way to be able to do that. Um, you learn weapons and stuff too, right? So you learn how to fight with knives, you learn how to fight with guns, like learn how to shoot, things like that. And so to me, it's just, it's just a great way to, to one, keep up with physical activity, which I think is so incredibly important, but then two, also learn how to defend myself, right? So should the need, need arise ever, where I'm in a situation that's dangerous or I have to protect myself or a family member or a friend or something, then I have the ability to do so. And you know, it just kind of raises that confidence level in yourself and being able to take care of yourself because you know how to do it. And you know, you know all these different things that you know your average person doesn't know. Most mm -hmm. people don't take a martial art in the United States. So yeah, it kind of gives you an edge a little bit, a little bit more awareness too. So I, I asked this question, uh because I do have a background in martial arts as well. Uh, mm -hmm. I've trained in uh, Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu for, for a long time now, uh, obviously in a pre COVID world, um, wrestling and that type of stuff as well. So I've always been interested in how those type of things translate into Krav Maga. And I've seen some, mm -hmm. uh, some reviews of Krav Maga and some things about that as well. So coming from somebody who trained Muay Thai like yourself, uh, what was that transition like from Muay Thai to Krav Maga? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but Krav Maga does, as you said, incorporate some more grappling-based techniques and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, I was able to utilize the, you know, the, the techniques I learned with, you know, using elbows, because, you know, Muay Thai is a lot of elbows, a lot of knees, right? You can damage, do a lot of damage really quickly with that. Um, and so tips. we do a lot of that. Free yeah, tip exactly. for anybody who listens, if you get in a street fight, if you know how to, use your elbow, don't use your hands. You can break your hands. Right, you can break exactly. them every time. It's, use your elbows. Much easier. You hit someone with the head. Plus, you hit someone with that elbow, like, they're, mm -hmm. they're going to go down. If you get a good strike, you yeah. hit them with a fist, you don't do it right, other than hurting yourself, like you said, right? You, you might not cause that much damage. If yeah. you hit them with an elbow in the face, they're going to feel it. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that translated really well. I did have to, and I, I do. I do have to learn a lot of that stuff because I never did wrestling. I never did any of that. I'm not, a, I mean, if people, people who know me or see me, I'm not a big guy, right? I'm like 160 pounds. Um, and so I'm not, I'm never going to really be able to wrestle somebody too much. Um, and so that's a little bit harder for me, but I think it's good because I'm learning how to like use my body in certain ways. Um, but yeah, I was able to pull in the, the, the knees and elbows really easily because that was something I had learned. Um, just some of the movement that I learned in Muay Thai, I think I've been able to pull some of that in. Um, but then expand beyond that, right? So to kind of use some of that uh, to take other things to the next level in terms of how I'm fighting with other people, right? When we're sparring, we're learning a certain move. Um, it, also the protection, right? Because in Muay Thai, you get a kick to the head real quick uh, <laughs> because of the ways in which people, uh, you know, end up training. Yeah. And so being able to like move and deflect that or get out of the way of something like that is also really helpful. So, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I think I saw some picture you put up a while ago, or something like that, but you also incorporate some weapons training into that as well, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, we do. And so as you get move up in belt ranks, um, you start to incorporate different weapons. And so you usually start off with knives. And so you know, I'm learning how to do different knife moves. And so that, that includes both attacking with a knife and also defending against a knife, whether you have one or not. Um, and so, you know, we learn different knife flows, how to take knives from folks. And so like, I feel a lot more confident now if somebody were, cause knife, we, we have a lot of guns in the US obviously, but knives are a thing that other people can have. They're very easy to conceal. Anybody can have at one point. Um, and so, and one of the things you actually learn too is a lot of people that do crop are like, I would much rather be in a gun fight than a knife fight because mm -hmm. <laughs> when you're in a knife fight, you're gonna get sliced. You're gonna get, you're gonna get sliced and stabbed up. It's just guaranteed to happen. They tell you that immediately. 
Um, so you do that. And we also learn guns, which I think is also really good too, uh, given the amount of guns we have in this country. Uh, to be able to take a weapon from somebody, to learn how to use it, what's, where, where should you stand if you need to, you know, to engage somebody with the weapon, um, all those different things, I think are just really helpful, just with awareness too, because the, the, the truth is that the vast majority of people in this country who own guns or own any weapons, they really have no idea how to use them, like yep. none. Uh, they just get them. And mm -hmm. so like, you know, it's a weapon in the hand of somebody who has no idea what to use it is, is useless, um, right? You're gonna hurt yourself or not hurt anybody if you intend to, and so. It, for me, it's more about just having the knowledge, right? The, the understanding of how these things work, how to use them. Because um, also too, right? So if you're in a situation and somebody pulls a gun on you, let's say you're lucky enough or able somehow to get the gun from them. If you yourself don't know how to use it, what's the point of you taking it? They're just gonna take it back, right? So I wanted to have the ability to, to just, the, for me, it's the knowledge, right? I guess maybe I'm a nerd in that sense. But I just like having the knowledge of these different things. And to me, it's just so cool to, to see this and understand how this stuff works. Um, and feel like I have that, you know, that a little bit of an edge that mm -hmm. just makes me feel a lot, just generally safer, um, you know, when I'm kind of whatever moving about in the world. I'm pretty sure I'm stealing this from someone. I'm not entirely certain about that. So I maybe made this up myself, but <laughs> it's only a person who knows how to defend themselves that can be a pacifist, excuse me, pacifist. Because if you don't know how to defend yourself, you're not a pacifist, you're not capable. It's a completely different thing yeah. than making a choice. So I, I agree with you there. I think that knowing that you can handle yourself and choosing how to uh, do the enact with the world where you could disarm somebody or something like that is a very important uh, thing to do. And I think that, again, I think there's a lot to be said for what you learn in martial arts. It doesn't come from just the combat of it, uh, the mm -hmm. brotherhood of it, the, the, the mental fortitude that comes from it and all that type of stuff. Uh, and just some yeah. of the stories and things that you'll have i remember the head of the gym i used to train at matt arroyo he told a story about when he was going to pick up his uh his engagement ring or his wedding band or something like that for his wife and they didn't have it ready and so he got a little flustered he's a little upset and the woman uh was trying to like calm him down or you know try to just appease him and she goes oh i see you got a scratch in your hand there what happened you okay he's like yeah i was trying to choke this kid and he just scratched me <laughs> not explaining that he's a martial arts instructor or that he does martial arts. <laughs> so it just made it sound like he was out there trying to choke people in the street and he got mad that the dude had a, the audacity to scratch him as he's trying to get away. So, but again, those are the type of stories that almost some of my best friends, I was uh, the best man in one of my best friend's weddings. And when he, when people ask, well, how'd you guys meet? He's like, well, he punched me in the face and then kicked me in the chest and I fell. <laughs> so that they say things that just don't make sense for people who don't train uh, in the martial arts. You're just like, wait, what the hell? You got Stockholm syndrome? He beat you into liking him? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Just fighting for no reason. <laughs> yeah. But you know, Krav Maga is one of the ones I wanted to look into as well, because I, like I said, I was mm -hmm. aware that the Israeli uh, forces use that. And one of the things I liked about it, I love any system of combat that combines hand-to-hand -hand techniques with weapons training because yeah. that is the reality of how those fights go down. You don't do one or the other. Yeah. You're going to do a combination of them. And so one of the ones I saw, there was a, a show, uh, uh, I think it was called Fight World or something like that. I can't remember, but basically what it was, it was two mixed martial arts guys who went around the world and studied in specific martial arts. Uh, so they did mm -hmm. Krav Maga in Israel. They did Eskrima, I think, in the Philippines or something like that. Um, and so the thing that I always liked is the, the woman who was teaching them, she had an M16 and she would do like say a kick to the knee or whatever else it was, but she would always get back in the position to use her primary weapon, which was her firearm. And that was always yeah. really because again, that's the most realistic combat system. Uh, unlike some of the military fighting systems that they train people on, I remember I was talking to uh, one of the guys who was going through one of the courses there, the combatives course, and they said, hey, if you know jujitsu, don't use it here. I'm like, 
what? <laughs> what? Why? Why? Why not? And so you have people who know jujitsu. They're going to. This is wrong. This is going to get somebody killed. You can't. They can't. But they have to teach them the combative system because everybody has to be trained yeah. the same way. But the guys who know jujitsu, like I wouldn't do this at all. That's going to get me mm-hmm. rolled over. It's going to get me hurt here. It's like that's just bad. So exactly. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I, I love it too because you do get to meet some interesting folks. And one of the um, one of the the people that helps instruct, he's a, a further up. He's actually supposed to be going for his black belt in crowd sometime soon. Um, he's a former Marine, right? Yeah. And so like he's, you know, he's, he's at the same time as he's teaching us crop, he's also able to interject all of these like real life things that he's like done in the training that he got as a Marine and all this stuff. And, and, you know, be able to tell us a little bit more about like the weapons that like, get more into detail about shooting and the stance that you want to be in, right? And like how far away from somebody you should be or like what's going to happen if you get into some of these fights, right? And so it, it is cool to really like learn from folks um, and to see people, because usually a lot of people who do crop um, they tend to be people that have done some other form of martial arts mm-hmm. first, right? So they're bringing all that stuff in. And so you're training against somebody and, you know, you like, I'm so inflexible. It's, it's atrocious. <laughs> um, so I'm not kicking, I'm not kicking anybody in the head unless they like jump off of something first. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you're in there sparring with somebody, you're just doing kicks and punches. And the next thing you know, somebody who trains in jujitsu or BJJ or something um, can kick you in the face, right? Like they, cause they have the, the ability to do that and they know all these things. They might be a black belt in some other form of martial arts yeah. and then they switch to crop. And so I think that's just so cool that you can have all that stuff come together. Um, and there's a place for it in crop. Like they encourage you like, oh, you know these things like, yeah, you need to learn this form. But like, as you're learning this, if you know that this thing is gonna work better, like, why would you not do that? The whole point is to win, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I like it. And that's one of the principles, again, to be cliche as possible, since we're talking about martial arts. Uh, one of the principles that Bruce Lee is known as a forefather of is taking what is useful and throwing out the rest. And he was all, he was yeah. trying to kill the tribalism that existed in martial arts by going, oh, karate is the best. This is the best. He's like, no, combine all those styles together to make a style that's uniquely yours and mm-hmm. then be the best. Because again, I don't care what body type you have. You're not going to find the singular martial art that will give you everything you need for self-defense. You know what I mean? You should, yeah. you look at people like mixed martial arts or uh, people who do Krav Maga or even a uh, Hapkido, any of these hybrid martial arts, they're better trained right. than somebody who trains in a singular martial art. Now I'd be, uh, I'd get beaten if I didn't say this out loud though. If you have to train an individual martial art, go for Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is for most people, yeah. particularly women or people of smaller stature, uh, because I believe uh, the gentleman who created uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was around 130 pounds or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. It's created based using physical uh, physics principles and those type of things. So train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu if you only have the money or time for one, uh, even though yeah. Muay Thai is more fun. Muay Thai is way more fun. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely was fun. That was, I had flashbacks to like Street Fighter when I was doing that one. Yeah. Did you do any body conditioning? In terms, like, what do you mean? Uh, and so if you're depending on how sadistic your Muay Thai or, or traditional that is as well, uh, your Muay Thai, uh, crew is, they will actually just make you hit each other. Uh, it, like oh, to do leg, just, so do leg kicks on one another just to get conditioned the legs and get used yeah. to uh, how it feels and everything. Cause the first thing I always yeah, tell people, yeah. I know, you know, this leg kicks is a different kind of pain. So anybody who has oh never God. been leg kicked before and sits there and watches a UFC fight or a Thai fight or kickboxing and says, oh, I, you're kicking legs, why is he doing that? I'm like, let me hit you and uh, I'll it tell hurts. you. It's a way <laughs> different type of pain. People are not used to that. Yeah, right, leg to leg is not fun. Yeah, we, we, I think we call it more uh, image training in crop. I never did it with Muay Thai. Um, but because I think it was just the result of the, the gym, the particular gym I was at. Mm-hmm. But the crowd, we do, right? So there's some, we have, you know, obviously we have pads and stuff that we hit. But sometimes the instructor's like, no, you're just going to hit each other because you yeah. need to know what it feels like. Like, obviously don't 
blast your partner as hard as you can. But you do want to know what it feels like now to be kicked or punched or hit so that when it happens to you out in the street, you're not just in shock because you got punched in the chest so hard that you didn't know what, you know, what was going on. And so you've got to be able to do that. Like that's definitely a, an integral part of, of learning that stuff. It sucks, but it does get you a, little, a lot more ready for what's really going to happen, particularly since we can't actually spar in the same ways as you can in some other sports because you mm -hmm. can't, it's hard to keep track of a point if what I'm trying to do is break your arm. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, that's the other, again, the best tip you can give in, in most martial arts, well, not necessarily all of them, because I, I know some of my friends who train in some other traditional martial arts, where if you, uh, you try to tap, they'll, they'll uh, essentially go harder. But tapping, <laughs> do, do not bring that ego on the mat. That's how people get things broken. That's how you get knocked out. Oh, yeah. That's how you get injured. Don't bring that no ego quick. in there. You, know what well, I mean? you got it. You got it. You did it. Let me go. Uh, oh, yeah. Yep. I call myself the quickest tap in the West. <laughs> Heck yeah. I'm not some of those arm bars and locks and, and like, oh my God, like that stuff is painful. Yeah. I don't want to just sit here and just let you rip my arm out the socket. Nope. Mm -hmm. I'm tapping out. Thank you. The most disappointing thing I think I learned as an adult, because I think we all learn something that, uh, disappoints us and kind of takes away that mysticism of being a child is that uh the stuff that steven seagal does doesn't work <laughs> yeah right <laughs> i wanted that to be real so bad he just walking through snapping necks and the arms and the elbows and i'm like yeah, nah, nah. It it's nothing like that man like that. absolutely not no <laughs> so, all right uh jonathan man i really appreciate this conversation really appreciate you coming and sharing your knowledge with me man and uh with anybody else who gets fortunate enough to listen to this so uh i'm gonna start this uh this trend uh, on Facebook right now, a petition, I should say, uh, of don't leave Facebook. It's better with you on it. Just, uh, just unfollow those people. <laughs> just unfollow some of the people who are causing you that heartache or, or get you a group of people you can sick on them, you know, educated individuals who have the, the energy and time that day because it is better with uh, people like yourself educating the masses. Uh, but at the same time, in the interest of self-care, do what you got to do for you, man. You, your responsibility is not that heavy that you got to do everything for everybody. So I appreciate what you have done. I appreciate what you continue to do for the community locally to Orlando, even though I hate Orlando. I think it's the worst city. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but keep doing what you're doing, man. I really appreciate it. And like I said, I appreciate you chopping it up with me today. And uh, I hope that we can stay more in touch and don't make it another 20 years before we chop it up again. Well, I appreciate you having me. This was, this was fantastic. It's great to connect with you again. I'm, I'm proud of what you're doing. This is, this is awesome. Don't have to start checking out other um, episodes and things that you're doing with talks with like folks man this is great we definitely need to stay in touch man we should keep making that happen absolutely man all right well i'll be in touch so thank you again for coming on and i'll holler at you later thanks for checking out today's episode of starting nowhere if you want to catch more starting nowhere make sure you like and subscribe starting nowhere is now available on apple Podcasts in addition to youtube and spotify check us out on your favorite way to listen to podcasts